aren't TV movies fun? Join Amanda, Dan, and Nate as they discuss their favorite made-for-TV movies on the Made-for-TV Mayhem Show. was creepy music for a very creepy episode this is amanda from the made for tv mayhem show we're back uh kind of quick we just had an episode we did a mini-sode with jeff nelson from shout factory which has gotten a lot of nice feedback um where we talked about the spell which is coming out uh september 5th so order your copy um but we're back now to do our regular double features which we're actually doing a little differently because for some reason we can't do anything the same way (laughs) episode to episode (laughs) so uh tonight we're going to be talking about the occult and tv movies um so i have to say about an hour before uh we started recording i was reading some stuff about the occult in the 70s and I feel like I came up with a mini hypothesis or something for us to think about while we talk about these films, and then I'm going to write my paper on it. So I'm pretty excited about it. So the movies we're covering tonight are the classic Crowhaven Farm, which came out in 1970, a movie that most people are familiar with if they know anything about TV movies. And our second feature is Bay Coven, which is a late-entry occult film from 1987 that um, I'm really hoping you guys paid better attention to than I did because I'll be honest, I've watched it three times and I can't really remember what happened. So um, I need a little help with that one. So, And we're going to do this a little differently, the breakdown, but we'll get into that after we introduce everybody. So let me start by introducing the sniffly one who should be muting his phone. Hey, Dan. Oh, uh, was I sniffing? I'm sorry. Um, uh, hey, everyone. It's Dan. <laughs> and I'm, uh, I'm what they call a handyman. What is that from? John Carradine says that... I don't remember either film. I just, you know, I'll be honest. This is what we're going to be talking about tonight, mostly. This is what I remember. No one ties the boat the way you do. Mainly, we're going to be hitting on some creepy stuff. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing all right. I'm ready to talk witches and covens. What's a coven, Amanda? Well, it's like a pact. Or it's a pack. It's from Big Big Coven, but I said packed instead of pack because I have to mess everything up. And I'm drinking already, just so you know. Oh, boy. Um, Yeah. (laughs) They actually do talk about what a coven is because Tim Matheson's character apparently has never heard the word even though he's like 40. Yes, and we can talk about that strange we moment. We can, uh, we can. I actually have a clip of that. Um, And we're here with Nate, finally. Hi, Nate. Hi, I'm back. Well, I guess you were back at the last episode, but, but we hardly got to hear from you. Oh, yeah, it was like I wasn't there. (laughs) I felt a little bad about that. But, yeah, you were sort of there in spirit, even though you were there physically. It was was a little meta, I have to say. I was listening. It was like like a live podcast. It was a live feed. It's very exciting. Uh, That was the best seat. So, so, Nate, what are you wearing? Um... Red gym shorts and a green T-shirt. See, I asked you that once, and I think you actually had on pajama bottoms that had bats on them. Oh, yeah, my bat pajamas. Yes. So, <laughs> so I ask you that every time now because I, I always hope that the bat pajamas have made a return. At uh, winter. Okay, okay. They will so in the they're winter. Coming. And, but bats are a perfect way to segue into the occult, isn't it? Sort of, maybe? Kind, yeah. Yes, kind ma'am. Of? Okay, 
So well, we're talking about what's interesting about these two films is when I paired them together, I paired them together because of their sort of witch theme, but I didn't actually realize how similar the films were. And I mean, they're really similar. I just was kind of surprised by that. So they ended up being a really nice double feature. And I have to say, um, he left some feedback and we'll hear from him a little later. But Roan um, from Ireland uh, actually kind of inspired this double feature. So I want to thank him because um, sometimes it's hard for me to come up with pairings. And this just seemed really perfect. And as it turns out, it was a really good fit. So before we get started, I just wanted to do um, a little bit of background on the occult. Now, the thing is, I ended up doing most of my research from the 70s. And it wasn't until like an hour ago that I thought of this connection between satanic panic and the embracing of the occult. So, you know, as you know, in the 70s, late 60s into the 70s, the paranormal became very popular not just in film, but just in our everyday culture. Everything from like, um, I don't know if you want to, I don't know if it's really paranormal, but things like astrology, we were looking at other things, these metaphysical aspects in our lives. Then by the 80s, they got kind of perverted and we, we fell into what was called the satanic panic. And so something I'd like to do tonight while we watch these movies is even though they're very similar, I'd like us to think about how maybe one might be addressing the state of our culture in the 70s as compared to how we might be viewing it in the 80s with the difference in attitude towards the paranormal. Um, so that's just a thought. Uh, I don't actually know if we'll get to that conversation, but if you guys could think about it while we're talking and if we have time at the end, that's something I'd like to discuss. But to put us into our time and place, um, I'm going to go ahead and just give you a little background on the occult and how we got there in the 70s. So um, there's an article from Richard Kyle called The Occult Roars Back, and he wrote in this article, quote, This so-called occult explosion entails two tendencies, one focusing on specific phenomena and the other on a worldview. These two emphasis are not mutually exclusive. They entail considerable overlap. First is the renewed interest in certain occult practices, the occult arts. Most popular are astrology and the many forms of uh, divination. Um, he wrote here cartomancy, which I'm not familiar with, crystal gazing, palmistry, Ouija boards, prophetic dreams and visions, psychometry, numer numerology, I Ching, and others. Other familiar occult practices and focuses that one might encounter include witchcraft, Satanism, spiritualism, necromancy, magic, paranormal experiences, unidentifiable flying objects, and perhaps the occasional monster, end quote. So to add to this, uh, I'll just read what I wrote. It's going to sound kind of stale because I wrote it, but it was in many ways a rebellion against the establishment. And what I mean by that is, is that we were challenging systems of powers and we were questioning the normal doctrine or doctrines of the norm, I guess. It was meant to lead to sort of a, um, a, a self-awareness, our, uh, our attraction to the occult, and hopefully some form of empowerment. And in some ways, it also helped us uh, create different forms of identity. Uh, for instance, Kyle cites astrology as one way to achieve this. So these beliefs became a huge part of the cultural landscape and filtered into our everyday lives and to everyday people. So it wasn't, even though it started with the subculture, it didn't really stay there. It actually entered the mainstream in a lot of different ways. So I found this really interesting article in the New York Times from 1970, which is the year Crowhaven Farm came out. Um, the American Toy Fair actually featured a slew of paranormal or occult-themed games, including Parker Brothers' Witch Pitch, for example, or Milton Bradley's Witch Witch, which featured a character based on Barnabas Collins. Not to, And then I also have to mention there was a Dark Shadows board game at the time. So 
Of course, this theme was prominent in the theaters as well, and we saw movies like Rosemary's Baby, which came out in 68, I believe, The Exorcist, The Omen, Simon King of the Witches, and Brotherhood of Satan were all um, exploring a contemporary, darker side of the supernatural or the occult or the paranormal. Of course, the small screen has always been known to sort of rip off what was happening on the big screen, so we ended up with a lot of movies in the same vein, such as Satan School for Girls, The Possessed, The UFO Incident, or something like The Eyes of Charles Sands. These are just variations on what we were seeing on the big screen. However, by the 1980s, we entered to, into what was called the Satanic Panic, which um, may have had some roots in the rise of the Moral Majority from the late 70s, which uh, the Moral Majority was founded by Jerry Falwell. The Moral Majority mobilized conservatives and Christians in an effort to return to the norms of that conservative establishment. The 80s was haunted by satanic rituals, which involved child abuse. Um, the McMartin trial, I think everybody here may remember, has some reference point for, as well as hysteria over rock music and the overall encouraging hysteria via a moral peril that we found ourselves in once Reagan took office. So what I'm saying here is that it's possible that we can view each film, even though they're similar, as responding to... Um, their culture at the time. Although I think Crowhaven Farm sort of has a negative view of the occult. Um, and we can talk about that as we go through the film. So it, in some ways it may be more similar to the satanic panic thought process than to the embracing of... And as a matter of fact, I think a lot of the TV movies were sort of showing the darker side of it. But it's interesting. I haven't read much about the satanic panic actually being a backlash against what we were dealing with in the 70s. And... I don't, I'm sure somebody's written about it. I don't think I just came up with that by myself, but I thought about it today and it seems kind of like it makes sense to me. Although it's really disturbing because most of what was happening in the 70s was very, um, nonviolent isn't the word I want to use, but it was nonviolent. You know, it was very much like it was about embracing something that we didn't understand. And I, I don't necessarily see that as a negative, um, but it, I think by the we were trying to break down the walls of the establishment. Obviously, it was um, you know after the end of the '60s and everything, and with, with the end of the Vietnam War, and we were questioning a lot of things. And um, and I think this was a positive way to sort of um, discover things within ourselves or within our world to not necessarily believe something just because um, the elite patriarchy, if you want to call it, without getting too snooty, had said it as such. Whereas by the time Reagan took office, now we're looking at how to get those norms back that we have been questioning. So I think it's a really interesting parallel. So I think, obviously we're going to have a really good time talking about this, but these are just some things I thought about while I was coming up with the notes. I was really fascinated by the Toy Fair from 1970. Um, that so, there, there were so many paranormal games um, hitting the market uh, for kids, and that just shows how much it filtered into our landscape. So um, we're going to start tonight with Crowhaven Farm. There's no promo for it that I could find, so I'm just going to dive into it. And we're doing this a little differently tonight. I have actually reviewed um, Crowhaven Farm and Bay Coven for my blog. So I'm just going to go ahead and read my reviews. Now, I haven't really looked at these since I've written them. I just kind of copied and pasted them into the document. So God knows how they'll read. But um, bear with me. And then we're going to just dive into a discussion. So let's start with Crowhaven Farm. I will tell you it originally aired on ABC uh, on November 24th, 1970. And here we go. The 1970s were all about duking it out with the devil. We saw it on the big screen with films like The Exorcist and The Omen, making it inevitable that the battle would find its way onto the small screen. 
The big films often offered extremely nuanced responses to cultural anxiety towards the unknown as wars raged and divorce rates rose. However, even if the small screen offerings had any political undertones, they tended to seem more interested in grabbing viewers with salacious titles, familiar actors, and a less visceral visual um, reaction to their theatrical counterparts. Movies like The Devil's Daughter, Satan's School for Girls, and The Possessed wanted to give us the ultimate battle of good versus evil, and sometimes the bad guy even won. Corehaven Farms substitutes the devil for a coven of witches, but it was probably one of the first to arrive during this bustle of supernatural small screen treats. And while not my favorite flick, it's still a lot of fun. Maggie and Ben Porter, Hope Lang and Paul Burke, inherit Crowhaven Farm, which is an idyllic estate located in Massachusetts. Although, Mag Although Maggie has never seen the farm, she is haunted by visions of the past with the house. Still, despite the weird, the weird feelings the place gives her, Crowhaven seems to be the perfect place for the porters to work out their marital issues, which concern problems with conceiving a child. A young orphan named Jennifer, played by Cindy Eilbacher, appears soon after, and it would seem the porters are on their way to becoming parents. Only Jennifer really just wants to be daddy's little girl, if you know what I mean. Yikes. Maggie is finally able to become pregnant, but by the time she figures out what is happening, it may be too late to save herself, her husband, or her baby. Confession. I am always mixing up Crowhaven Farm with Dark Secret of Harvest Home, because it's been years since I had seen either film, and don't quote me, but I remember that they had similar stories. And please don't really quote me, because the more I read about Harvest, the more it looks like they're not that similar at all. I'm disappointed in myself for, for rem not remembering either movie better, so I decided it was time to sit down and give them both a spin. Despite that being the best plan ever, I've only gotten to Crowhaven Farm. Uh, well, that's not that unfortunate because it's quite enjoyable. Crowhaven Farm is a small screen classic, fondly remembered by pretty much anyone who caught it during its original run. All these years later and the film still holds water, even to relative newbies like myself, thanks to um, the outstanding cast, I think we all know I love, I love me a little Lloyd Bachner now and again, and props to the young, wide-eyed Cindy Eilbacher for putting in a particularly disturbed performance as the creepy little girl. While Ben might be oblivious to Jen's, Jennifer's lusty stares, the audience is given a front-row seat to every unpleasant and sinister glance she throws at him. Shivers. The film unfolds nicely, if also predictably, because some of the foreshadowing hits you over the head with a frickin' mallet. And aside, it's so funny how TV movies can be such an intimate experience coming straight into your living room, but the films often take the more obvious approach to storytelling. I have no complaints, though, because the warm tones, eerie atmosphere, and unnerving Jennifer make Crowhaven Farm both comfortable in its familiarity and also deliciously haunting despite dropping some large hints to the audience. I, now, reading this now, I will tell you I have m different feelings about Crowhaven Farm than I did when I originally watched it this a few years ago. Um, I really, really enjoyed it this time. It's got a lot of depth to it. I think the stuff going on with Jennifer and Paul Burke's character, Ben Porter, is really legitimately creepy. Um, I don't know that they could get away with doing something like that on TV today. I mean, she gets into bed with him. She's a 10-year-old girl. And, of course, nothing happens but the expression on her face when she's laying next to him is really terrifying. And I'm like curious what audiences thought in 1970 when they saw it. But that's just one of the many things that's happening in this film. It has an amazing cast. Lloyd Bachner, I have to point out, is one of my favorites. John Carradine, um, who Dan mentioned earlier. And of course, Hope Lang and Paul Burke really carry this film, as well as um, Cindy Eilbacher. Uh, I, I have to say it's really, really good and um, I feel bad that I thought it was kind of predictable because I don't know that that matters. I think the effect of the film is really, really good. So I'm just going to ask everybody in the room what they thought of it. So now Nate confessed that he hasn't seen the movie in a while. So if he could just give us a general overview of what he remembers, that would be great. Nate? Yes, and I have to apologize to the listeners. 
it's been a very frantic week. But so, you're here. Yes, I, I made it. <laughs> I would agree um, with you now because I really, in, I mean, I enjoy Crowhaven Farm. Um, but I, I could kind of see where you were coming from with uh, remarks about it being a little predictable. I mean, it kind of is, but to be fair, I mean, it was, you know, made in what, 1970? Yeah. So it's, you know, it's when I was, I was born in 80. So, you know, I, I feel like by the time I got around to actually seeing this one, I'd seen a lot of other movies like it already, even though they more than likely came after right. this one. But, you know, so I, I didn't want to judge it, you know, like uh, based off of that, uh, because I actually did, you know, find myself, you know, enjoying it more than, uh, you know, I, I guess more than I thought I would at the time. Uh, there was a time in my life, and I'll probably get pelted with uh, tomatoes for this, where uh, Made for TV did not necessarily draw me to the <gasps> film. But I've changed. I've changed. <laughs> Thank God. I've changed for the better. I've changed All right. for the better. We wouldn't even be talking. You know what? <laughs> but, if Tori Spelling heard you say that, she would gasp. I know. It would be awful. It would be horrible. But, you know, I like, I mean, it's, you know, it's got very good acting in it. You know, I think you, you mentioned uh, uh, Cynthia Albacher in... Um, uh, I always thought that she was uh, really, really good in it. Uh, unfortunately, like you said, it has been a little while, and um, you know I'm going to have to utilize the five minutes with Nate <laughs> to give a very more okay. updated review on one that I'm actually here talking about now. That's okay. Let me know more to say about Big Coven, but I wanted you to go first because I think Dan will probably yes. have a little bit more to add to it. So, um, uh, Dan... Yeah. Well, the, f the first time I saw uh, Ms. Eilbacher there, my, my first thought was, is Babs going to show right. up? That's right. I, I always and think I that, one. too, from Bad Ronald. Yeah. I was like, Babs! Uh, and, and the thoughts, I had never seen this before, and now I've seen it twice. And it's my, I really, I really enjoyed it. I didn't love it for some reason. It felt, um, it, it kind of alternates between, for me, between, like, being this harrowing um story about this woman and the baby and these images she's seeing and all this craziness going on and sort of a slightly um i don't want to say sterileness but maybe it's all that doctor who's in it yes. or something he creeps me out <laughs> that, that, I love actor. that guy um but yeah um so so it it was it was one that i enjoyed but i didn't love um the things i really uh did uh enjoy about it very much where i love the pacing of it especially in the beginning because it starts off Within, I wrote it down within, no, I didn't write it down. I was in, within four minutes, they've, she's inherited the farm and they're on the farm, you know, and, and there is another heir who gets killed right. within those four minutes and there's a reading of the will and there are the opening credits. So that's very speedy. It goes very speedy, uh, which I really liked. Uh, I, I have one question on the placement of movie uh, titles because the guy who's supposed to inherit it, um, but dies, make, leaving um, our lead character to inherit it. Uh, he crashes into something. Uh, his car explodes thanks to, um, you know, that, that evil little scamp. What, what was her character? Jennifer. Jennifer. And, and you see it immediately that you get the big musical sting and you see the sign that says Crowhaven yes. Farm. There's a pause, and then all of a sudden the title, Crowhaven Farm, is superimposed over... The, the the sign and I thought is 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 that necessary for the title to actually appear like on a title 
even if it's on a sign. That's funny. But I never thought of that, but I think that, maybe they were trying to like overemphasize the title. So like you may see the sign okay. and you know you're obviously you know you're watching Cody Farm, you tuned into it, but maybe it was just to really like make sure you got that that was the title of the film as well as the property. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I get yeah, yeah, and possibly you may have had people who if if they didn't see an actual title appear and then saw lots of credits may have thought, "What movie yeah, is this we're yeah. watching?" Check the TV guide. Uh, I I really do I I do really enjoy the pacing of the way it starts off where she arrives at the house and she instantly starts like opening secret passages yes. and saying I don't know how I know that how do I know that and and then they start talking reincarnation and they go into it really quick and Jennifer is introduced very quickly I I I wish I I wish I loved it like I said there's something about it that it doesn't fully grab me although I really do think I, I love as you get and. You know, there are spoilers are ahead here, folks. But as it gets towards the end, it it jumps more and more in between her thinking she's involved in something and then maybe she's right. not. And then someone seems to be a part of the coven that maybe they're not. Or like Lloyd Bachner there. I thought he was part yeah. of the coven, but I don't think no, he is. No, I don't think he is either. I think he's just a pawn in their game, just like the historian. Is that Henry? Yeah. Yes, yes. With but they pain. all seem like they fit and in. That's so interesting because it's like a it's like a community that seems very peaceful. Mm-hmm. But it's but half of it they're not all in on the the secret. That's interesting. Uh, and and I just I I've got a playing next to me on the left, and I've got uh, John Carradine is on the screen. And of course, the moment he shows up and says, "I'm what's known as a handyman," uh, oh, I'm what they call a handyman. My first thought was. I don't think you need all of that part at the beginning of the sentence. You can just say I'm a handyman. <laughs> she, she may be from the city. I, I figured she probably figured that out. But there's there's just I, I love the 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 sort of torture concept of laying the person on the ground, putting basically like a like a wooden door on top of them and just stacking stones on them. I don't know where to go because we're doing this so differently, but I wanted to play the clip True. where the historian kind of goes into um, the backstory of Crowhaven Farm. Oh, yes, please. Yeah. There was a certain Martha Lawson. She had a husband, Martha did, whom she didn't much care for. How well I know that feeling. Divorce being unthinkable, Mistress Lawson looked about for an alternative. Acting on the advice of a friendly witch, she took off her wedding ring and passed it to a bona fide representative of the coven. The coven? What's that? The witch equivalent of a bridge club. Before you could say the Lord's Prayer backwards, husband Lawson was dead, and his soul signed, sealed, and delivered to the devil. At one time, half the population of Brampton was suspected of witchcraft, accused by the other half. Actually, there were eight executed. Seven were hanged, and one was pressed to death. The accused witch was placed under a wooden plank, then stone such as our walls are made of, were piled on top. Usually, they were trying to get a confession. But if the accused wouldn't confess, she was finally crushed under the weight. For heaven's sake, Harold, that's enough. Yeah, that's a really good scene. So, you know, they move into Crowhaven Farm, and, um, and they're just kind of unpacking and getting settled, and then all of these people show up at their house one night to have a party. And as we find out later, half of them sort of know what's happening um, with Maggie Porter, and the other half are just sort of people that live in the town, um, which is a really interesting mm-hmm. dynamic that I actually hadn't considered till you brought that up. And um, 
And they've got this historian, because there's always a historian, right, who knows all about the town. Mm -hmm. And he tells these stories about what happens to these people. And then, of course, you know that these are gonna, this is going to apply to something later. And um, Henry does not have a happy ending at the end, <laughs> by the end of this. No. <laughs> Just too bad because he's freaking adorable. But um, it kind of really sets the tone for, uh, it gives you the whole history and you kind of have a general idea what's going to happen. But it does sort of trick you because I think our general inclination is that we're supposed to think sort of everybody knows what's going on, but they mm -hmm. don't. And yeah, and, and as I said, as it goes along and approaches there because she, she, uh, she has a baby very quickly in the movie too it's like she finds out she's pregnant right before christmas then suddenly it's new year's then a few minutes it's later summer, she has yeah. a baby and yeah it's it, it, yeah it's very very swift um and and when it gets to that the, the climax it is a series of of moments where they seem to be uh, the cast dressed as uh puritans seem to be sort of harassing her and then torturing her and then all of a sudden they're not and you keep you keep not quite uh getting what is what is reality and what is in her mind or maybe it's all reality and they've got some witch's power over it to to keep changing things so it's it's weird and then it draws towards a really odd ending that i've watched twice now and i think i understand what's going on i won't go into Ooh. it too deeply here so you folks well, can watch no it, we should because i think the endings oh, i think the okay. ending's really ambiguous too and by the way we have some feedback from Kristen who kind of thinks uh she knows how it ends but oh. I'll be honest, I never I, considered her ending until I read that. So we'll we'll get to that when we do the feedback. But it does have a very ambiguous okay. ending. And something interesting, just a piece of trivia. So William Smith is the guy that shows up at the end. Yes. And Maggie thinks she's kind of broken free from this curse or whatever, and this, uh, this paranormal coven of witches or whatever. And she's at a park somewhere, we're assuming in a big city, right? And William Smith shows up in a cop uniform, and he... Um, He's talking to her, and he's being very friendly. He looks amazing. And he's, <laughs> well, I, I guess it's hard to go into it without going into the Ben Porter bow thing. But anyway, so he does this thing that is exactly what her husband used to do. And she's kind of sacrificed her husband to save her child. So he's doing this thing. And to me, I kind of saw the ending, and I don't know if I went into it enough that people will understand if they haven't seen the movie, but I saw the ending as positive in that Ben spirit would always be with her. I kind of saw it that way too. He, but that, she doesn't uh, look happy about it. Mm -hmm. So that's what confuses me. So maybe let's backtrack and let's get to uh, ben. So Ben is the husband, played by Paul Burke, who is a very famous character actor. Um, I feel like he was on a really famous show in the 60s, and of course it's eluding me right now what it was. Um, like M Squad or something like that. It's not M Squad, but it's something like that. And um, very handsome. I've been... Uh, Paul Burke and Christopher George were separated at birth. And it really pains me that the two of them never played brothers. And they, in fact, did an episode of Fantasy Island together, but never shared a scene. Oh, that's it too bad. It kills me, because... <laughs> they should have been brothers in something or cop buddies or something. So anyway, Paul Burke, he was also on an episode of Magnum P.I. As a matter of fact, I think he was on a couple episodes. Um, he is the he is the husband, and he's feeling really kind of low about his uh, masculinity because he can't produce a child with his wife. And I think it's implied that the reason why they can't have a child is really his fault. And I say fault in quotes because, so. you know, it's just something that happened. 
And um, and so he's really testy. And what's interesting is Nate had sent us an email saying something about the Richard Matheson, not Richard Matheson, Tim Matheson's character. In uh, I wish Richard Matheson had played the husband in Fake Coven. That would have been crazy. <laughs> Tim Matheson's husband is really like um, he's a pain in the ass, right? And and I think mm. Paul Burke is much the same way. He's really irritable. Yeah. He's not trustworthy. Um, he's easy to manipulate, and he creates a lot of problems in the family. And and he gets je jealous at the drop. Oh my god, hands. he gets so jealous. So at the beginning, you know, Lloyd Bachner shows up, and he's a big flirt, and he really likes Maggie. Um, but he's being pretty. I would say it's not rapey at all, but it is a little forceful. But it's not horrible. But it doesn't take mm -hmm. much to get Ben really upset about it. So part of the manipulation that the witches do is that they set up situations or scenarios that can be read different ways. So on a really rainy mm -hmm. night, um, uh, Maggie is at work. She gets a job as a legal secretary for this firm. And she um, gets a call from Lloyd Bachner's character. And he tells her that she can spend, the roads are washed out. So she can spend the night at his apartment. But that's okay because he's going out of town. But this will come back later to haunt him. Oh, it's yes. what sets yeah. everything in motion. So so somehow the witches manipulated that or they took that situation and were figuring out a way to make it negative. So so there's all kinds of this leads to all kinds of questions with Ben later on about who the father of the baby is and um all kinds of stuff. And it also leads to Lloyd Bachner's untimely death. And um and so the the witches are all encompassing in the film. Like they, they're setting all kinds of shit in motion. And the most innocuous characters are the are the scariest, like the doctor, you mm -hmm. know. Yes. As a as a figure of authority, he's very trustworthy and he seems super likable, but he turns out to be like really heavy into the shit. You know what I mean? And so yeah. he ends up being one of the scariest people involved in it. And I can't remember what the original sort of so Ben gets caught up in this game and he ends up not making it to the end in the way that he makes it, but I don't know exactly what becomes of him. So his jealousy ends up leading him to... Uh, it's so much better when you do the breakdown, Dan. I've already made a decision because now we're kind of... It's kind of hard <laughs> to keep it line, like linear. Do you know what I mean? So, sure, yeah. It's more challenging than I thought. I will say they make Ben so... Uh, and he was in Naked That's City. That's what I it is. Naked that City. I'm sorry. He was, he, he was, yeah, it is a bit challenging to sort of do it like this. Um, uh, there, there's a thing, um, and as, as you just mentioned, Lloyd Bachner's character doesn't make it to the end, and Ben thinks that, yeah, he and he and Maggie or Bachner and Maggie, I forget his character's name right at the moment, uh, him and Maggie are sleeping together, so he sort of storms with a shotgun into his house, Some somehow gets inside his, I guess, into his apartment yeah. or his whatever, and breaks in and shoots him. Because he's in bed with a woman, but it's sort of like I'm, – I'm wondering if – because it, it seemed a bit much to me. Because what happens is he storms in. Uh, Bachner stands up and kind of goes, whoa, hey, hey, and then he shoots him dead. And then it – I forget if the light goes on or whether the woman just leans into the light and it's its his wife, Bachner's, Bachner's yes. wife, right? I don't know not, if it's his not, wife yes, or not, his girlfriend, but, but somebody the, who the knows lady. him very well. The lady he hangs yeah. out with, yeah, and and she's got a big smile on her face. It's, ah, and I'm wondering if, because uh, because um, he uh, uh, Ben Ben, ben right? Porter. I'm, yeah. I'm sorry. I, yes, Ben Porter. He um he he didn't seem that terribly. He he's he he kind of gets jerky, yeah, at times, and and like I said, he flies off the handle 
at a moment's notice. But you would think if you're storming in there with a shotgun to commit murder, you would verify <laughs> that the woman was your wife because because uh, uh, Meg has short hair That's right. and the woman in is, is it Meg it's or Maggie. Maggie? It is Meg. Oh, I gotta write. I, I, think, I, gotta I think Meg um, is Ma- the is the woman from the old times that she's. Oh yes, that's right, Meg Carey yes. or something like that. Yeah, yes, and because c- Maggie has short hair and this other woman has long hair, and you would think there'd just be a pause where he and and I think that's probably got something to do with the fact that at this point in the story, um, Maggie's already given his soul to Jennifer, and I think he's sort of just running on yeah, instinct. Yeah, that's possible. And and. And so, so it's sort of like, because that was my thought. It, the first time I watched it, I was like, okay, I think I see what's happening. But then the second time I, I thought, it, yeah, because it ends, as you said, in order to save her baby, she gives her wedding ring to Jennifer, which transfers uh, Ben's soul to Jennifer. It's, but Ben's still It's alive. sort of interesting to see the male as the object. That's like different yes. than I'm used to. Yeah. And, and he is, he, they're, well, first of all, Maggie's like, whatever, take the ring. But like, <laughs> uh, <laughs> they do do a strange thing though, where they they put the pl- the plank on her, they cover it with stones, and like only her shoulders and her head is sticking out, and they say, "Give me the yes. wedding ring." And I'm thinking, can she get her arms out from underneath there? She does, but it's like, surely you would have left her arms free. Well, here's the thing: <laughs> the fact that she could get her arms out says to me she could have struggled a little harder to get out from under those planks. Absolutely. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. So, um, yeah, Ben is an interesting character because uh, he's like, I feel like through most of the film, we're supposed to assume that he's under the workings of somebody else, like the witches are controlling him to a certain extent. And his ending is left very ambiguous. So he kills Lloyd Bachner's character, and he realizes that he's killed somebody who was in bed with somebody that wasn't his wife. And the police are coming. And then they have this Frankenstein moment where he's getting chased through the valley with, like, torches and everything. And he's he's looking for a place to hide. And he comes to this sort of embankment or something. And Jennifer is standing up there, and she puts her hand out to him. And she says, come to me, Ben, or whatever. And he reaches out for her. And that's mm-hmm. the last we see of either one of them. And we don't yeah. really know. So, okay, just random. While I was watching this, I was thinking to myself, this reminds me of 2000 Maniacs. Oh, yeah. Because all of the characters, okay. ha- something had happened to them in the past, and they were coming back mm-hmm. to get revenge, only instead of getting revenge on random people who just happened to come from a different part of the country, they had specifically targeted a woman who had basically sold them out to save her own skin yeah. because they were being accused of witches. And then she was basically like, if I do this, can I go on? And she got Jennifer's husband, right? The man that was supposed mm-hmm. to have been, I think, in the future given to her. And so um, and it made me just think of 2000 Maniacs while I was watching it. But the, it's so weird. We never find out what really happens to Ben. We assume he ends up with Jennifer, but do they stay in this time? Or do they go back and they're living sort of as ghosts? Like, does he die? Or doesn't he die? Well, he died. He's on the rock in the end. Oh, that's right. You're right. He does die. So, so their spirits go somewhere together, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like he, yeah, he's dead in his, I think his soul, like somewhere in there, I think his soul transfers over to Jennifer, uh, but we don't know where any of that, how, how that works. We, we're not privy to the, the, the way the witches rules. And then I it guess, seems like he sort of shows up at the end as William Smith. 
Yeah, well, may, maybe, you know. May, hmm. So the piece of may, trivia I was going to give you earlier, and I completely went over my head and I forgot, is that William Smith is in one scene at the very end of the film, and the L.A. Times actually pointed him out in the review as a pleasant oh. presence in the film. And I thought that was really, I, guess, I mean, he had just done Laredo. So, I mean, he was pretty famous on TV, uh-huh. but it was interesting to see somebody who shows up in one scene being called out by a major critic in the L.A. Times. Yeah. He is, he is William Smith. It was, it was almost like, like a, it, it felt very much like a, I forgot he was in Laredo yeah, right I around that Laredo. time. Um, I, I do love Laredo also. Yeah. Um, uh, that, that's one of a spin, spin off from the Virginian, which I love. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, when he shows up, it does very much feel like a, like a special cameo by someone at the end of a movie yeah. kind of thing where it's like, oh my gosh, it's William Smith. And, and it, they, maybe they're doing it to sort of make it even stranger that, that like, Ben is now William Smith. Ben is what? now extra oh, hunky. He's gone from hunky to super hunky. I'm I'm wondering if it's sort of maybe Jennifer didn't she already have a soul or is she? I'm yeah. It's, it's it gets tricky. <laughs> it's tough. It gets tricky because if you, or is it she's just trying to steal a soul for revenge purposes and maybe she doesn't do anything with the soul maybe she just sets it free and it re- goes into william smith but then william smith is a grown-up don't the souls normally when they die go into babies and stuff was william smith just sort of sitting there one day like him and michael pataki were shooting the breeze <laughs> after well wait was grave of the vampire after this it was i think sorry uh, just kind of he was just kind of sitting around and all of a sudden he was like whoa Watch me tie this bow, guys. You know the what? There's like, this, um, this is going to take me a little while to get into it, but there's a One Life to Live storyline from the last like 15 years the show was on the air where this girl named Marcy was in love with this character named Al, and Al was sort of a legacy character that in that it, he was born on the show, the character, and then he went away for a while, and then he came back as this like gorgeous 20-something-year-old, and he started dating Marcy, and they fell in love, and it was this really popular love story on the show. But... Um, uh, the actor who played Al was uh, had a very tumultuous life. He actually died very young in real life, uh, just last year, I think. Um, and he had to be let go from the show. Uh, for he did something, and they were going to write him out. And but he was so popular that um, they he was forced to be brought back. But the problem was they had killed him. So they had a character uh, who was um, uh, John McBain's brother played by, uh, the character's name was Michael. I can't even remember who played him originally. And what they did was they had Al soul come back and jump into Michael. But then when he jumped into Michael, he then looked like Al because they brought the actor back and they okay. never explained it really. Just all of a sudden he, he looked wow. like the same actor, but playing a different character. Mm-hmm. So well, I'm just saying that I guess you can do that because this guy, Michael had already lived, uh, a huge portion of his life right and mm-hmm. then and then all of a sudden this other guy kind of comes into him and the two merge oh, you see what yeah. i'm saying and but he was already 30 yeah, right yeah. and so and so yeah. he's part michael and he's part al at least that's my memory of how the character went i'm sure i would like to live fan can clarify okay. that a little better for me but um the point is is that they brought him back and it was wonderful because alan marcy <laughs> and michael and marcy it was so good whoever it was um because they had chemistry for days um but um so i think it's possible but you're right it's like it just feels like he comes back in a different body maybe william smith didn't mm-hmm. exist at all before like a, maybe you know tra- like a trans like a conjuring yeah. or something i don't really know but it, it's super vague i'm I'm wondering if this is going to be one of those movies i watch like uh because well the first time i watched i had one interpretation then the second time i had a slightly different one and it's like the bergman film the silence I, every time I watch that, I think it means something different. So I'm wondering if Crowhaven Farm 
is the same as that. Just one of those movies that throws in so many ambiguities ambiguities as it goes. And I'm not drinking. uh, Throws in so many ambiguities as it goes along that it it, it almost throws in sort of one too many near the end. Uh, Like it it, possibly with the William Smith one, although I do like it, where it's just it's got one of those endings where it's like, here's the ending. No, here's the ending. Here's the ending. Here's the here it is. Here it is. And you're like, whoa, hey. And then I I can't I think uh, so I I'm think sorry. so it's I think she made the right decision. So uh Maggie's decision is she can save her baby if she gives up her husband. And I'm not saying anybody should give up their husband <laughs> like this, but uh, I mean she did have a baby. And I feel mm-hmm. like I feel like given those alternatives with nothing else to choose from, I would probably choose my baby too even though I have no maternal instincts. I mean it just seems like the right decision. And she wasn't mm-hmm. given much to do. And so Ben, it's interesting, Ben's just such a pawn through the whole film. I mean, how much of it is influenced from the witches and how much of it is Ben being Ben? Like, we're never sure. Yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm certain. I mean, they, they get him sort of the, because he, he's an artist, and I think they give get him the art show or something, isn't it, implied? Yes. So they And so, so on the day when the really bad stuff happens, he is the day of his art show. And so there's an interesting that the wedding ring thing is interesting because like 10 minutes into the movie, Maggie says, I don't want to stay here. And Ben says, I want to stay here so much. And I swear on our wedding rings. And if you if if you'll do this, then I will. I will. You can ask me anything. You can ask me anything. and I'll do it. And then she asks him, please don't leave. On the oh, day when right. the baby's been to. born. And he has to leave. And then he loses his soul when she gives up the wedding ring that has a broken vow on it. Wow. Look at so, you. It's it's one of those movies that I think if you talk it through, uh, I, I think it, it makes more and more sense. And I, I like uh, I like it. The more I talk about it, the, the more I like it. This is like what I'm kind of talking about, about sort of like... Um, so it's a complicated film in the way it's responding to the current culture of the time because it's like so by the 70s, and this is 1970, but by the early 70s, we were starting to embrace all of this stuff. But this is a pretty negative depiction of the occult. Yes. And um, so this has been a thing on my mind ever since I was in Miskatonic because I did a part of my presentation was on and I'm going to be writing a paper on this and presenting it at Kent University. But Hooray! yay, but there's a... Um, TV movies are, are geared towards women usually, and they to get women to watch, they have you know really strong female characters, or if the character isn't that strong, at least it's female centric. I'm thinking of um, Sweet Sweet Rachel, which does not have a strong female character, but it has a prominent female character, and it's supposed to be more empowering than say a theatrical film. But in films like this, particularly that deal with the paranormal, it feels like the female leads never end well. They get killed mm. or some like what's happened to her. She's had to give up her husband. Do you know what I mean? And so I, it's hard yeah. for me to see what the message really is. So it's using all of these things to sort of uh, lure women in to the film. But then it's got a lot of negative mm-hmm. messages. And actually in some of the feedback we'll get, Roan brought up a really interesting point about female hysteria. And, you know, we were talking about um, what's that movie that you like so much? Uh, I like it too with uh, Kojak. Um, Last Slumber Party. Oh, oh, uh, oh. She cried um, murder? Oh, uh, um, yes, yeah, they're playing yes, heavily on yes, her not knowing what yeah. she saw because she's a widow and a woman. So she can't possibly have yeah. seen a murder. 
the way she says she mm-hmm. saw it, that she must be wrong. And here I think they're kind of doing the same thing where they're like, they're putting a lot of weight on the woman to not be correct. I get what you did there. Wait on the oh, woman. Oh, ha, 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 ha. I didn't even realize that. Get it? Because they put a plank on her. Just like in 2000 Maniacs when they rolled the guy down in the barrel. That's actually what I think of. <laughs> <laughs> Amanda's being literal and metaphorical at the same time. She's one of the few who I can't can do stop it. thinking about 2000 Maniacs right now. I think it's the same film. It's the same film. <laughs> Fun film. Yeah. I'm in. I mean, are these people, are these people sort of just a, a appearing there for this are they ancestors are they the original people well no they They're were the dead. original they were people they can't be the original i feel like people. they were the original people that were sacrificed because of meg or Maggie, I'm sorry. And, the, oh, and they're, they're, go- they're ghosts? So I they're, guess they're, they're are ghosts, they, are, so they're apparitions that have come to get revenge because Jennifer says something about being killed when she was 10. Yes. And and so she's she's still Jennifer. So okay. they're And are they are they in, are they inhabiting the bodies of their ancestors? Is that what they, or are they actually is that why they keep vanishing? Because when we see them dressed as the Puritans, they're actually ghosts attacking her. Yeah, I felt like they were probably apparitions. It's okay. like that. Which is that Star Trek that, uh, series that has the hologram that like does surgery? Oh, I. It's either Deep Space Nine or and, Voyager. I want to say like, Voyager. Or is it? And Enterprise? you're like, he's a hologram. How can he hold utensils? And I yes, asked my. Yes, I'm sorry. Star I asked Trek my mom sorry, that, sorry, and she got really mad because <laughs> your mom was a you nurse. Know, she right? loved that character. And so I was like, I was okay. like, I don't understand how a hologram can perform surgery, mom. And she's like, just shut up. It's what he, <laughs> wow, it's what he really does. Well, one time actually, so I have this like um, tick. I don't know what you want to call it, but like for years and years and years, my response to every question anybody asked me was Jeffrey Dahmer. So like, if you said who's on the <laughs> phone, I would say Jeffrey Dahmer. Who are you hanging out with tonight? Jeffrey Dahmer. So I used to, I said it ad nauseum for like years. And one night my mom and I were going out somewhere and she asked me who was on the phone or something. And I said, Jeffrey Dahmer. She goes, shut up, shut up, shut up. I forbid you oh, wow. from using that name in this house ever again. And I'm like, mom, I say that to everybody. Yeah. No, you do it to me to annoy me. And so that oh. reaction is the same reaction she had for that character that was the hologram. And then the next day you saw her giving her wedding ring to a young blonde. <laughs> she was sacrificing girl. the shit out of me the next day, let me tell you. She was done. <laughs> can I get a witch over here? I can sacrifice my uh, ingrate daughter. That's right. But, um, but I felt like they were apparitions. I could obviously pick up things and like do stuff. Okay. okay. Yeah, because there are moments too, like when her friend who's from the city and who turns into one of them. And it's like, you remember when she runs out with her baby, her friend pulls up in a car and like, how you doing, lovey? Or whatever she calls her. We got to get out of here. Okay. And they drive like 50 feet. And then all of a sudden, she turns into a Puritan. And I'm wondering if she was like part of a bloodline or something that just got possessed or, or I, I, don't I don't know. know. People, people need to help us with this because I, I guess I didn't understand it as well as I thought I did. Oh, you know what scene is on um, uh, my TV right now? Uh, Jennifer's tying uh, present. Oh, we're at the uh, end. Okay, so let's get to Jennifer then. So let me go ahead and play the clip that introduces okay. Jennifer to us. I asked you to wait in the car. I'm sorry, Aunt Mercy, but I was cold. Oh, I bet you were. You're Jennifer. Yes, ma'am. I'm Maggie. Short for Margaret. Maggie's friendlier. And this is my husband, Ben. Hi, Jennifer. Hello, Ben. That's a friendly name, too. 
Did you paint this bed? That's right. Those colors are so pretty. They're almost too pretty. They make me want to cry. Well, that's the nicest compliment I've ever had. And then they did it. Oh, Lord. <laughs> yeah, as, as you say, yikes. Big, big time. This yikes. is, I think, what keeps the film sort of in people's minds over the years is that all that stuff we talked about, about it being ambiguous and we're not sure what happened, none of that matters because we've got a 10-year-old girl who completely sexualizes a, I don't know, how old would you say Ben Porter was? Late 30s, early 40s? I mean, I'd say 1970-wise. He he looks to me, he looks older than me, and I'm almost in my mid-40s, but um, I would say 1970-wise, he's probably like 40 Yeah, maybe. So. I mean, maybe. he looks good. Don't get me wrong. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But, um, yeah. but like, from the moment she sees him, it's like... Ben, are you an artist, Ben? Yeah, it, Have you looked at my legs, Ben? Oh boy, it's it reminded me a bit. I thought of the movie The Orphan on occasion. I don't know if I'm you've seen sure that. I'm not sure I have. Is that a '70s film? No, no, that was uh, that was maybe no. five, six years no, ago, ten, ten years ago, something. Like that. But yeah, I won't go into The Orphan. But there were moments that sort of vaguely reminded me of that. I prefer this. But it's like it's like. It starts off so innocuous, like she's just this kind of lost little girl whose parents had died, and this her aunt, Aunt Mercy, has um, had oh found boy. out she's dying, right? And so she's trying to supposedly, so she's trying to find a home for Jennifer, and they don't really want her because she's ten. And Maggie mm -hmm. actually says, "Oh, she's already half grown. You know why do we want a fucking ten year old in our house?" So um, <laughs> she doesn't say it quite like that. <laughs> but you know you get the point and so then jennifer shows up just at the right time to be this like sort of beautiful lost looking sort of jan brady if jan brady had been a deer yeah oh yeah very <laughs> very lost and and so therefore she's alluring because she's really vulnerable like her only relative is dying and she's already lost her parents so they take her in but she doesn't necessarily she's this actress cindy eilbacher does a really good job of being both innocent and a complete slut. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like she has this air about her that you would never think a little girl would be the way she is in the film. But she does these things. And the biggest, I think, most disturbing moment in the film is when um, Maggie has to stay in town because of the storm. And so Jennifer goes into Ben and Maggie's bedroom and it's just Ben reading. Just reading his book. And... Oh, of course, she kisses Ben sort of beforehand. They're tucking her in, and Maggie gives her a kiss, and then Ben leans down, and then she sort of moves in a way that she can give him a deeper kiss. And I don't know who Cindy Aubacher's parents are, but wow, guys. It's like putting your yeah, kid's sleepaway like, camp to me, right? Yeah, it's like L Linda Blair's yes, parents or something like and that. So, yeah, and then later there's a storm, and so she goes into Ben's bedroom, and she's like afraid or something, and she's like, can I get into bed with you? And he's she's lonely. She's, she's lonely. lonely. And so he's like, yeah, whatever. And I mean, how many times did I climb into bed with my dad? You know, I never thought twice about it. But they're not mother, I mean, father and daughter. And she gets into bed. And I put a still of it on my blog. And she's staring at him while he's reading. Yeah. And it's so fucking creepy. Because yeah. she's yeah. thinking, she's thinking adult thoughts. Like you can see it in her eyes. She she was a big fan of Naked City. <laughs> well, we all were, weren't we? It is Paul Burke. Yes. Come on. Yes, exactly. But um, it's yeah. so upsetting because it's so good. Like it's so well done, and the yeah. actress is so she's so duplicitous in the film. She plays it both ways. 
You know what I mean? It's like you've stumbled onto Three's Company, where what's happening in the kitchen is really innocent, but what you're hearing is really evil. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's exactly like a Three's <laughs> yeah. Company episode. And I love her. And so she, um, towards the end of the film, right before uh, Ben thinks that the baby isn't his, he comes home and he's been out at the art show and she's by herself and she's trying to tie something. And he says, you need to learn to tie this uh, the a la porter way and he does that big thing and then she says no one ties the bow the way you do and even just the way she says it <laughs> yeah. is so sexual without being sexual at all and she's even looking at him in yeah. this really like it's more than a crush you know what i mean it's it's yeah. it's disturbing is what it is yeah, and Ben never sort of tweaks to it like, uh, "Hey, you, you weird little kid, why are you, why are you in my bed staring at me like that? That's uh, disturbing me." And she even Please like, um, like when she so uh, Lloyd Bachner's character comes to the house, and he's flirting with Maggie, and he's he's joking around. He's also duplicitous because he's you're never quite sure if he's really hitting on her or if he's just joking, and that's his way of being funny with women. Um, but it's a lot less sinister. And it's more yeah. just annoying is what it is. But he's sort of telling Maggie, like, uh, she says, let's not tell Ben I spent the night in your apartment even though you weren't there. And he's like, well, next time I'll try to be there or whatever. And Jennifer's listening. And that mm -hmm. and she's dressed as uh, Priscilla. Yeah, and the look on her face, you know, mm -hmm. like listening yeah. to this. It's, it's almost like, I mean, obviously it comes into play later because she needs to retell that story to Ben. But she's kind of into the idea of them doing it, too. Like, you get the impression that, like, the sexually laden <laughs> conversation is really interesting to her. Do you know what I mean? Uh -huh. Like, yeah. she's, she's a 10-year-old, but she's got an adult, uh, mm -hmm. you know, she's mature inside. Uh, yeah, part of me then was was thinking through through some of it. I, I had the thought that well, maybe she's the whatever it is that's sort of possessing her, or whatever is much older. Yes, and that's why she's doing this. But then I thought, but then in the end, she says she died when she was ten. But I so, wonder if being so a ghost I, all those years, she's matured inside. Because isn't there like a well, reference? Yeah. It's not in the hunger, but I feel like there's a movie. Oh, near dark has it right where he gets killed as a little kid, and so the vampire's a little kid, but he's like an adult, oh, yes. right? Yeah. And mm -hmm. also the tin drum. Okay, yeah. I mean, it's not unusual to see that. Yeah. Although yeah. that's super disturbing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's um. Yeah, she. I. She. Jennifer's got a, a long line in looking at Ben lovingly, and then just looking at other people in strange fashions there's the when the historian guy oh, comes yes. to visit there's just a minute long scene where the historian's sitting there kind of staring straight ahead and she's just sitting like in a chair near him just staring right at him and he keeps kind of looking on over at her and she keeps she just won't stop staring at him and it's very um it's kind of creepy and <laughs> like Jennifer, it's jarring and i think that's yes, what exactly, i think yeah. that's what crowhaven farm where it works for me because watching it this time yes there's a lot of familiarity to the story and i think it's semi-predictable but it has things in it that are legit creepy and not just that but things that you probably would never see on tv today like yeah, it, yeah and i do wonder what, what folks thought yeah i'd be curious because the whoa yeah. No, I mean just that yeah. alone is enough. So the rest of it's almost like uh, it's almost like dressing for this weird subplot with Jennifer sexualizing Ben and like mm -hmm. wanting to be with him as a 
but in the body of a 10 year old girl having very adult thoughts about a guy who looks very adult you know mm -hmm. it's not just a crush like when I was 10 my crush on Paul Burke was very innocent you know what I mean it was nothing yes. like Jennifer and w I waited till I turned 18 before I started having those thoughts about him <laughs> you know what I mean so yes yeah. <laughs> but, and I think that's what, what works for the movie I also think the plank scene is really jarring too because we're not really yeah. seeing anything but it looks painful yes yeah the way it cuts around it, you know, you, I don't think you ever actually get a shot where you see like her, the plank and them placing right. stones on her at the same time. You sort of, it cuts in between all. Yeah. Of and them. it does a with, with, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. I was going to say with sort of Jennifer looming over Maggie the whole time, just, uh, telling her what she did wrong in her past life and then demanding that ring. Yes. And, um, I forgot what I was going to say. It's, it's, it's Maybe, 2000 maniacs guys. It is. Maybe Jennifer knows that um, in the end, Maggie, no matter what they do to her, will will give up her husband's soul rather than anything revol uh, than her own. Yes. Because that's what she did in the past. So she's looking at Ben like that because she's like, I'm going to have your soul soon. And I think it's delicious. <laughs> or something I think like it's that. delicious I, I, too, Jennifer. That, that's <laughs> Imagine if she had that attitude when she was living in that house with Bad Ronald. She oh, wouldn't gosh. have even known what to do. Yeah, that's... That's true, yeah. Or Babs had had that attitude. Oh, Babs. <laughs> I don't think Babs could have that attitude, but I think Cindy Eilbacher has it in her. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Yeah, it's a very, very, uh, it's it's the standout of the film. I mean, it's what I always remember. Yeah. Um, although yeah. I didn't realize um, how well he could tie a bow. And now it's yes. all I can think about, guys. <sighs> tie my bow, Ben. And just, tie my bow. Just think... <laughs> This 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 has taken several strange erotic turns <laughs> that I fully didn't expect. Well, I mean, to. it's a weird film. It's it's that's what it's saying. It is a weird film, you know. And it like is, I said, it's like it eroticizing the male instead of the other way around, which is interesting. Yes. And at the same time, though, it's got women in a pretty negative light. I mean, even yeah. even though I think she made the right choice, she still has to sacrifice someone. And there's this idea that she's done something wrong. Yes. You know? Yeah. Although yeah, the the ending is a flurry of scenes, and it it doesn't it doesn't pause. It just kind of happens, and then suddenly William Smith is riding away on a but, horse. But you know, it's a really interesting transition when she gives the ring. I can't remember exactly what happens. She gives the ring to Jennifer, and I don't know if she passes out or something. But then she wakes up and she's in the field, just laying next to her baby, and there's yes. this music playing. It's really well done, and it's kind of like this overhead shot of her with the baby, mm -hmm. and then it. And then it closes yeah. in, and then she. I don't think she realizes she's with the baby at first because she wakes mm -hmm. up and she's. I don't think she's really sure she what happened. She's sure it really happened, and so then the baby's crying. And I was thinking about the baby laying there. I don't know how mobile babies are because I don't know anything about babies. But like, if somebody threw me in a grass field like that, I'd be moving around. Yeah, yeah. Just now's the time to start. Laying <laughs> yeah, when okay. he's just laying there. And um, but it's it's kind of eerie the way it's done. Yeah, I, I I think I think it does sort of some weird temporal things where suddenly she's in the field by herself. Then I want to say that Ben arrives yes. home and the bow is being tied. Then we get the shooting and the wait. Then the no no we get the shooting, and then I think we get Maggie and the baby seeing jennifer with the ring yes and then we get the chase and jennifer is out there too almost like she's she's sort of um bilocating yes and then and then ben's on the rock he's dead then she's maggie's with the carriage and, a, and william smith and there's a there. bite mark on his back 
Yes, like the satanic bite mark or whatever it is, because um, Jennifer has that also. And that's a weird scene, too. The scene when they discover, she Maggie discovers Jennifer um, yes. has the bite mark on her. And I don't mean to sound like a perv, but basically the scene is you kind of, there's like something is up in front of the screen. And then the camera kind of goes up just a little and Jennifer steps out and you, you don't see anything, but she's obviously just stepped out of the bathtub that's and right. she's apparently nude. And Maggie is holding up the towel in front of the camera and then wraps Jennifer in the towel and pats her off. Let's let's warm you up and, and everything. And it's it's a very strange like, whoa, hey, what do you got? What that's are you doing even there? a that's even a weird scene too, because because she's so comfortable being nude. Yes. And like she walks into yeah. the towel without like thinking this woman, this weird woman I don't know very well is holding a towel for me. Like I can I'm ten. <laughs> she's a little odd. I can, yeah, yeah, I could do this myself. <laughs> I did that myself at ten, and um, and so yes. yeah, it's like everything about Jennifer is so off. Yeah, maybe we should uh, let's devote an episode solely to Jennifer, uh, one yes. time. Or I write a, I write a paper. Well, if we ever do a creepy kids retrospective, oh yeah, yes. I think she yeah. should be on our creepy kids. Um, yeah. is that kind of where we are with this? Do we have anything else? I to think add? so. Yeah, I think that's all, all I got. Yeah. So that's Craven Farm. I'm good. I think we all enjoyed it. Uh, Nate, would you recommend it based off your memory? Oh yeah, I would. Good, Dan. Yes, yes, definitely. It's. It, I think it's worth watching more than once. Yeah. I um, I will say one of the things I really like about it. So when in my review, I talked about the comfort factor of it, and um, it looks so of its time in a really wonderful way. It's got a lot of warm tones to it. Um, just aesthetically, it's a really pleasing film to look at. Um, everybody looks 70s, but not in like the Five Desperate Women, super gaudy way, which we loved. Yeah. But this is kind of like a more a more realistic aesthetic. And um, it's got a lot of neat stuff. The house is really neat. I really like the walk-in fireplace. Oh, yeah, yes. it's yeah. got a lot of like really beautiful shots of the house and um, some neat ones of the town. And it's got some really great like, you know, everyone's typing in the law office. There's just this pool mm -hmm. of secretaries typing up papers, and um, and the fashions subdued but very seventies, and um, and it's got a really interesting cast of characters. Although it's really about the family, uh, Jennifer, Maggie, and Ben. The Lloyd Bachner character is really fun. The woman who plays his girlfriend or wife or whatever she is is really fun. Um, the doctor's great. I really really like Henry the historian. Hey, that, I like that, Henry the <laughs> And, of course, seeing John Carradine in anything is always really nice. So it, the, yes. the, there's yeah. a comfort factor, and you're going to recognize, like, 90% of the actors. And, and it's really warm, and it kind of washes over you. But at the same time, it's got this undercurrent that's really sinister. And I think that's mm -hmm. what makes it a really interesting film. And something that I think if maybe you're not as familiar with this type of film, like from the early 70s. Because um, I know there are people that listen to the show who don't really watch TV movies. and But if they're interested in checking them out, I think this might be a fun one for for somebody who is yeah. a newbie. Not in that it's a classic in the way that it's like, oh my God, I'm never going to forget this film. But I think it kind of shows you they were making these films very alluring in a, in a kind of an aesthetic way with the actors and the set designs and stuff you know, and really capturing the era. So yes. yeah, I would, I would highly recommend this movie. It's so much better than I remembered it. Um, and yeah, it's, it leaves up more questions than I think it answers, but it's worth it just for the ride, just for the journey. Yes. Agreed. Yay. Wow. We did Yay. it. I think it made sense. Yeah. Cause last week did, I don't think we made sense with our high school USA episode. You know what? I I did a bad job. You of did not do a bad job. It's just that it was two ensemble pieces, and I don't think we realized how mm -hmm. difficult it was going to be because there were like thirty subplots. 
I think you could hear that by the time we got to the feedback, we bo- both were exhausted. <laughs> I think we'd worn ourselves yeah, out. Yeah, it was but. it was tough. And let me just give you some trivia on Coney Island Farm before we move on. Um, so this was an Aaron Spelling production. And what's so interesting is that another movie Aaron Spelling did came out in 1970 called The House That Would Not Die. And while I was watching this film, speaking of aesthetics, The House That Would Not Die, I think it's a, a better film than Coney Island Farm, to be honest. Um... I was thinking, God, these films look a lot alike. And then I saw that they were both produced by Aaron Spelling. So I thought that was really interesting. Corhaven Farm was really popular. Uh, It ranked number 10 for the 1970 to 71 season um, with a 26.9 slash 40, which means 26.9 million people or homes with televisions were watching it, which represents 40% of the television viewing audience. Almost half of America that had TVs was watching Crowhaven Farm, y'all. That's good times. Um, This was one of four spelling productions that ended up in the top 10 of that season, including Run, Simon, Run, which I think starred Burt Reynolds, Wild Women, which is a Western, and Yuma, which I'm assuming is a Wild West, uh, well, Wild Western, which is a Western. Um, this ran in England during the week ending September 10th, 19, uh, 1972, and it ranked number six in London. I don't understand how they do their ratings, but I found a chart, and it looks like they rate things by city. So um, I guess London was really into their uh, paranormal occult films then, because it came in number six. Uh, this was directed by Walter. Or they're all just a bunch of pervs. That's possible. That's very possible. Now that I've met some people who live in England. Oh, oh. yeah. Okay. So um, this was directed by Walter Grauman, um, who actually was working as an executive in charge of production in 1970 at Spelling Productions. So I thought that was really interesting. He'd already been a pretty prolific director at this point. but So I was interested to see that he was working as an executive in production as well. Um, Grauman is actually related to Chinese theater uh, owner Sid Grauman, and he's best known for directing Murder, She Wrote, but is an extremely prolific filmmaker. Um, in 1970, he also directed The Man Who Cried Wolf, who um, with I think is with Edward G. Robinson. Um, we're going to watch that one day. That's an excellent film. Um, in 1971, Walter Grauman actually directed four films. So you know how we're often talking about how directors make so many films in a year. Um, in, in 1971, he did The Forgotten Man, Paper Man, Dead Men Tell No Tales, and They Call It Murder. Um, the screenwriter was John McGreevy. He was a prolific episode, uh, episodic writer with over 400 teleplays to his credit, but he's best known as writing for the Waltons, and he sometimes uh, wrote in his own life experiences into his play, into his teleplays. Not here, I don't think. I hope. Um, but a good example was he did a Waltons episode called The Legend about a kid who had an alcoholic father, and that was based off of... Um, John's own father, who was an alcoholic. Uh, also, John McGreevy went to college at 15 years old, so he was a genius, wow. just like Sheldon on the Big Bang Theory, guys. Ah. Oh, neat. Hmm. I made it modern. <laughs> uh, what do you think, folks? What do you think when we make it modern? Should we do that more often? I can bring up more modern no, let's horror not. movies. let's not. But okay. anyway, so um, we're going to move on to Corhaven Farm, and we're going to play a promo. Oh, so we're going to move on to Bay Coven. Oh, oops. Yeah, we're going to move on to Bay Coven, guys. We're gonna, what I meant to say there was we we're going to go to 1987, which is more modern. And we're going to talk about this movie that I can't remember for the life of me, even though I watched it three times in the last week. Okay, <laughs> so here we go. She tried to ignore the strange happenings around her new house and the bizarre neighbors. <laughs> but when her husband got weird... You've changed. It's me. It's Jerry. She had to look into it. And now she may have gone too far. Pamela Sue Martin. We have to get off the island right away. Big Coven Sunday. 
Okay, so that was not the original network ad. That was like a, I don't think, I think that was just a really poorly produced uh, uh, local ad uh, with horrible sound quality, so I apologize. So here's the review. So it aired on NBC on October 25th, 1987. Um, Pamela Sue Martin gets the best guys. It all started when she landed the role of Nancy Drew in the 1970s. She became Parker Stevenson's frustrating love interest, and I think I hated her a little for it. How does one compete against that? Eventually, I learned to let go and knew in my heart, and knew in my heart it was for the best. Parker was not destined to be mine. Then, just when I thought I'd grown up a bit, I see she's attached to Tim Matheson and Bay Coven. Seriously, when does this madness end? Pamela is Trace chic in this movie, too. She plays Linda, an ambitious executive type who lives in an ultra-fab apartment with her husband, Jerry, played by Tim Matheson. They have a very green acres. They have very green acres like dreams. He wants fresh air. She wants Times Square via Canada. It looks like at this super cool and smoky jazz club, they meet Josh and Debbie, Jeff Conaway and Susan Rattan, who tell them about Bay Cove, which is close enough to commute to the city but country enough to make you wish you owned more overalls. Apparently, there is this house for sale, super cheap. So Linda and Jerry take a trip out to this little island. Things get a little creepy. Inst- things get a little creepy instantly with the strange lady who owns the place and will still be living in the property after they buy it. But hey, it's Barbara Billingsley, so it must be okay, right? But as it is with any old creepy house on a small island movie, the couple move in and then start to discover the evil lurking underneath the idyllic locale. You would have to be really gullible to not figure out what is going on. There are no twists. Well, except for one startling and well-filmed death scene. But it is still a pretty good little movie. Why? Because Pamela Sue Martin is awesome. Sure, it's hard for me to admit that but this, with the whole Parker Stevenson incident, but it's true. I like that lady. She plays an interesting character here, falling falling smack dab between obnoxious but smart Nancy Drew and sleazy but sexy Fallon from Dynasty. She's pretty rounded out here, maybe a little more akin to the adult version of her Nancy Drew counterpart. The cast of familiar faces include Matheson, Billingsley, a young Woody Harrelson, James Sicking, and Inga Swenson, and it will probably make any child of the 80s a little happy. As I said, there's not so much in the way of shocks, but there is a comfortable feeling aided by the wonderful cast of television-friendly faces that, along with some nice, steady pacing from director Carl Schenkel, who also did The Hitchhiker and Silence Like Glass, makes Big Coven a pleasant surprise. I had to be sitting on this movie... I had been sitting on this movie for years now. I remember my husband giving me a copy after um, all this ooing and aahing about it, and it somehow got left unwatched. Maybe because it's so readily available. Big Coven has enjoyed a release on VHS under the title Eye of the Demon, and then on DVD as Bay Cove. And it's also been streaming on Netflix, and, and hell, it's, it was even on Hulu as well. I guess it became less desirable because I could see it anywhere. I like my hidden gems, although lately that Netflix has been making my mouth water. That's how old this review is, because Netflix sucks now. I'm really glad I was desperate to find something to watch while I worked out. See, I always work out and watch movies the other day, because I might have gone a few more years and missed this fun late-entry TV horror film. But now, what will I work out to? So, I actually remember watching this on my treadmill. I have a very specific memory of living in Maryland and putting this on and uh, turning it up all the way because I didn't have an iPad or anything to put it on. I had to just watch it on uh, my TV and walking on the treadmill for 90 minutes. And I remember really liking it. Um, so much so that I think I gave it a good review here. This time, I didn't dislike it, but I don't, it didn't stick with me. Like, nothing stuck with me. I couldn't remember like once a scene passed I couldn't remember what happened and I watched it three times and I'm still not quite sure what happened (laughs) so uh I'm hoping you guys can help me Dan oh um well uh 
I um, do, do you want me to tell you what happened, or do you want me to tell, tell you what me I thought, what you of, thought it? of it, and then we'll talk about what happened? Okay. Um, I it, it, the first I watched it twice. The first time I watched it, I thought it was just okay. I, I um, I, it didn't really wow me. Uh, but the second time I watched it, I thought it was really inane. Um, and I have reasoning behind that. I won't. I'll go into the and uh, uh, my reason behind that later after we get Nate's thoughts on it. But um, yeah, it was. It, it, it's the sort of movie where I, there are moments that I where I'm really into it, and then suddenly there are moments where I was sitting there shaking my head, going, "Really? Come well, on!" And I and, and well, there's there's some startling imagery in this movie. So I guess one of the things we'll talk about, uh, and you brought it up when you were watching Coed Call Girl, was like how different TV movies looked in the '90s. And I think in the yes. 70s, they had a more filmic quality. Um, in the 80s, mm -hmm. they were somewhere in between. But it looks pretty yeah. cheaply produced to me when I watch it. Uh, but I will say that, like, there's a little boy in the movie. And do you remember he comes up to her on his, like, bicycle? And he t says something to her. Mm -hmm. And he goes, and it looks like he goes off a cliff. And he just, Yes. Yeah, that, that is a great moment because it's like, what? Yeah, he what? just disappears into, like, the yeah. abyss. And um, it's amazing. Mm -hmm. And um, and also the little girl is really, there's some interesting camera work with her. And there's some really beautiful shots of um, Pamela Sue Martin going to the island on the on the mm -hmm. ferry. And you could tell that they were, that they had, and also the death scene, which I'm sure we'll talk about. It has some really interesting flourishes in it, but it's very static and flat. You yeah. know, and, and that was a problem, yeah. especially after Crowhaven Farm, because I think Crowhaven Farm is more filmic and a little more dynamic, you know? Yes. I, I did keep thinking as I was watching it the second time, if this were sort of a theatrical or direct-to-video, I think it would have been more fun because they could have spiced yeah. it up with some uh, sex and violence, which I think to me is what it, it needs. It needs a little more verve. And like I said, I'll... I'll I'll discuss some of the inanities a little bit later. But um, it's, it's... I mean, I would say it's... If you like your witch movies, if you like your 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 Pamela Sue Martin, Tim Matheson, well, maybe not Tim Matheson so much in this. If you like your Barbara Billingsley, this this is fun to watch, but it 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 might be one of those. For some reason, I don't I don't know why. If this if this were like a direct to video movie, the sort of inane bits would probably have endeared me to it, but for some reason they didn't in here. And and I don't fully know why, but there are definitely some sinister moments. There's some nice plotting. I think there's some great. Uh, there are some great moments. I think the ending is very effective, um, but there are just a few too many moments. Like on my page of notes here, that I just have stars by moments where I, I said, "What? Come on!" So those those are my initial thoughts. Okay, Nate. Um, I, I might have liked it better than than you guys did. Uh, maybe just for a lot of the cheesy aspects of it. I did have an issue with her husband, Tim Matheson. <laughs> um, when I sent you guys that message, it was in the scene where, you know, her friend, Woody Harrelson, uh, has, you know, been in an accident. And she's trying to talk to her husband about it, her friend who is, you know, dead. Uh, and her, uh, Tim Matheson's like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> who would talk to their spouse like that after they just lost yeah. But he was being taken to. over. I mean, it was so awful. He couldn't help it. I know, but I mean, at the time, it was very much, um, oh man, you'd be wearing that coffee that I was holding <laughs> if I was her. <laughs> um, but yeah, she, you know, and, and I felt like she is a little, was a little slow on the uptake of what was going on. I mean, she, you know, that like she knew something weird was going on a long time ago and she just, you know, lets, you know, her husband 
put her off and put her off and say, oh, you know, if you feel this way, you know, 10 months from now, then we'll uh, move. I mean, (laughs) it's not quite that long, but I mean, it's just like she just keeps hanging around despite the fact that she knows something weird is going on. Um, And she's also one of these people that when she finds out something bad's going on, she doesn't, um, you know, try to just escape or keep it to herself and try to get away. She basically confronts, you know, other people like, oh, you know, I know you're behind it all to their face, which is probably not the smartest idea. Um, I felt bad for her dog, though. Yeah. Yeah. I did, too. But you knew Rufus was heading for a bad end at the beginning. I know. Because I was thinking... You know, I, it was just funny to me that the way that they, you know, come over with their cat and introduce themselves uh, and everything. And I don't know. I just, I, I, I've never seen anybody do that before. I guess. <laughs> yes, it's bring the cat over. Like, yeah. But yeah, I mean, uh, I knew that Rufus was, you know, not going to survive. But I was still sad to see him not go. Not long for this world. Yes. Adorable you know, Rufus. But, I mean, the movie itself, I mean, I, I liked it. It's probably not one that I would watch again anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I thought it was good for at least one watch. Yeah, I think my one watch was like a few years ago when I was on the treadmill. So <laughs> so this watch. <laughs> that was your one that time. That was the one time. I loved it. I think, I think why I liked it so much then was that that Woody Harrelson scene was so unexpected. So, like, they moved to Big mm-hmm. Cove. Cove. And by the way, I think calling the movie Big Coven does it a disservice because it already gives away the secret. And although you kind of are generally sure where it's going to go, they retitled it Big Cove. And I think that's a much better title because it's so enigmatic. It could mean anything. And and I I wish that they had done that to start with instead of just throwing you into what is going to happen. But when I saw it, um, I was not expecting Woody Harrelson. Like, I don't know if he was going to make it or not, but I was not expecting the death that he got, which was fantastic. So, like, they moved yeah. to Bay Cove, and a bunch of shit's happening, and Rufus dies, and um, Woody Harrelson, who's Slater, is really good friends with Pamela Sue Martin's character, who's Linda, and um, I don't think it's ever insinuated that they had... Oh, yeah, it is. It's insinuated they had a romance, I think, at one point, I feel... But um, obviously, Jerry, played by Tim Matheson, has won Linda's heart. But they've stayed friends, and they're really close. And so he comes out to this party. They're kind of having a housewarming party or something. And he comes out to sort of cheerlead her because she's really uncomfortable being in this island where she doesn't know anybody, and she doesn't really like them. She thinks they're weird, and she's already starting to get suspicious about like a conspiracy or something. And so he comes, and he's there to comfort her, and he gets this phone call. And um, it's supposedly his mom is in the hospital. And so he has to go home. So strangely enough, Linda asks uh, James B. Sicking's character, Nicholas, can Slater borrow your car? Not can I drive Slater to the ferry? Can he just borrow your car and leave it at the ferry yes. dock? You, yeah. you know what I mean? Which is weird. And, um, and so he gets in the car, but it, he can only get it in reverse and he can't get it to stop. So once he gets the car started, it starts going backwards uh, and what's behind him is this cliff. And so there's like a 30 second, like 
thing where he's just going backwards and freaking out and Pamela Sue Martin starts running after him in her beautiful red dress because she looks amazing in this movie I mean let's be honest and she's running and she's yelling no and it's all done like in slow motion and he goes off the cliff and they put a dummy in the jeep which I really like that added detail because you know there's a lot of movies where I watch where cars have like fallen and you can tell nobody's in the car and here they've got what looks like a real body falling mm -hmm. to his death and um he hits the he hits the rocks below really hard, and that's it. He's gone, and it's so shocking in the film. There's not what all was I what I was expecting. Yes. I was expecting the dog not to make it. The kids are creepy. That's fine. I get it. But watching Woody Harrelson barrel off that cliff in reverse, whoa, whoa. You know what? When I said that, as because it takes him a while to go backwards, but to be honest. If I was in Slater's mm -hmm. position, I don't know how I would have reacted either because it was so unexpected mm -hmm. and it was going really fast. And yeah. I think your instant reaction is because jumping out of a car would be really painful and most people know that. So I guess your instant reaction is to see what you can do while you're in the car before it goes off. But it is an open Jeep. It would have been like nothing for him to roll out of it. And it only occurred to me now mm -hmm. when I was talking about it because it does take a while to go off the cliff. He probably should have jumped out. He's an idiot. He deserved it. <laughs> well, my, my 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 thought was that maybe when they originally wrote it, it wasn't a Jeep. It was like a regular, like a station wagon or a BMW or something. And they could only get a Jeep. And as he was backing up, they thought, well, maybe if we do this fast enough and we edit enough, it'll look like he can't get out of here. It really gets to me. Um, it and it's still scene, effective. Yeah. Even every time I watch it, it's like the scene that I kind of live for while I'm watching it. And then they go on to yeah to the scene that that Nate doesn't like where where Tim Matheson's character is being unpleasant. And then they go on to a weird three or four minute long scene where she uh, Pamela Sue Martin's character returns to the city and That's discusses right. zoning problems with her boss, uh, which I found a very weird thing because I thought, why are we talking zoning? I know it has to do with the island they're on, but it comes to nothing. And it's such a weird scene because it's like you think, okay, are they going to defeat the witches through some strange <laughs> That's zoning the thing, I or maybe? Uh, but but in in the end, in the end, it's just it's it a weird, it it's a, ended it in was a weird moment. But yes, it would have been so good. Oh, wouldn't that have been fantastic? And and one of the witches just just got called out and was like, "I'm a witch. It was me." No matter what oh, she did, she couldn't get out of her situation. Mm-hmm. Because I want to talk about Jeff Conway. I mean, we skipped over Susan Rattan and Jeff Conway. But but speaking of Woody Harrelson's death scene, I do want to say sure. that there's some really interesting things in here. The little boy going off the cliff and disappearing into the abyss. I think the little girl with the knife uh, while they're chopping the salad. Do you remember that? Uh, before the party is a really striking scene. Yes. Um, and there was that scene where she finally goes to visit the old man. So where they move in, there's a guy that sits by his window in like the neighboring house and he's like 90 and he just stares out the window. And sometimes he, he makes motions mm -hmm. towards her. And the first one was sort of like, don't buy the house, do not buy the house. And, and they buy the house. And so she goes yes, over no. to visit him sort of towards the end of the film. And she thinks he is the father of, I think, Inga Svensson and James B. Sicking. I think she's James B. Sicking's father. But it turns out he's the grandson. Mm -hmm. And that's a really cool moment because yes. that's yeah. not what you're expecting to hear. And then mm -hmm. they had already insinuated that Nicholas and Maddie, who is Inga Svensson and Jim Sicking, were 300 years old. But so, but to hear him mm -hmm. say that, that he yes. is the grandson and they look half his age was really kind of startling as well. 
And those were the scenes that I really appreciated about the film. I feel like if they could have had more of that, it had atmosphere in like a handful of spots. And if they could have maybe expanded on that, they could have made the movie much better. Mm-hmm. Now, what what part of it d- don't doesn't stick with you? What part of the plot? Maybe maybe. Well, it's, it's the end. Okay. Like, I keep forgetting what what happens. Like, she ends up on the boat at the end by her. It's, yeah, it's rowboating away. It's all so let's get just yeah. death, isn't it? Yeah, and then and you're like, you know, the police are gonna have some questions, Linda. So it's. Because you've killed the entire island. Yeah, yeah. She blows up everyone on the island. <laughs> yeah, she does. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. I mean, I guess I know what happens, but I don't understand the impact of it. So, like, you know, and also when they go to the livery, you know, uh, on the island, and they go down into wherever that like sort of ritual area yes. is. Does that look like the fakest ritual area you've it ever? Does seen? look like a very fake ritual area. Yes, and 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 not only that, but that thing that they look at on the post. The post that you're not supposed to touch or else you die. I can't tell what yeah. that is. I'm not sure I'm not sure what that is they're looking at. Because everyone looks at it like, oh my god. Oh yeah, I'm not sure either. Oh my god. Yeah, you're Do you right. know what that is, Nate? What they were looking at? No. I yeah. was on mute because of the <laughs> planes flying overhead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it I, yeah, it's a it does feel like almost like a like a high school play set. And and then they they, they approach this um uh post or something and everyone is like entranced by it and i'm looking at it and i can't feel it looks like a a piece of round metal nailed to it with a little platform underneath it or something and i thought i don't understand what that's supposed to be at all that that must be where they executed the witches possibly maybe that's something sacrificial or i don't know i mean because that's that's the thing when it draws towards the end that they were a coven they were 13 they're 300 years old Barbara Billingsley's husband repented. He dies in the opening scene, so they need a 13th to fill up the coven again. And Tim Matheson's character is part of the bloodline, so they bring him there, and they begin sort of infecting him. That's what I didn't get. I didn't get any oh. of that. I was just going to ask what the opening scene had to do with the film. Yes, that, that, is, that is Barbara Billingsley's uh, husband finally escaped. That, that makes this movie so good. Like, it, it makes sense now. Yeah, Pamela Sue Martin discovers that that her husband has been taken over by this uh, group, and at the next full moon, at the witching hour, she is going to be sacrificed because she touched the post, which is a sacrificial thing, and the sacrifice is going to welcome her husband into the coven. But at the last moment, as they're coming for her, he, her husband is going going to basically bring her to them, but he repents, and they he. Ends up stabbing himself. They go to the church where this coven swarms in. She swarms out. And because it's a church, it's the witching hour. Apparently God strikes it with lightning and it explodes. So that's that's the movie. And then she's on her little rowboat on the Yes, it's the credits roll. Yeah. So. Yeah. So that, wow, that makes so much more good. sense. I didn't understand any of that and I can't figure out why. Like, I couldn't. I couldn't put it together it was just i was watching things happen do you know yes, what i mean yes exactly yeah and and i could never catch the meaning of it but i will tell you big coven has this when you hear the laughter right after the rain listen to the happiness think of me again have thoughts of me when like okay first of all i'm cutting that but like <laughs> 
Is she in two different rooms? <laughs> did you hear I got all tinny? Yes. Yes, I did. Yeah. I don't understand why that happened, but that is the coolest club I've ever seen because everything yeah. is like super neon mm-hmm. and smoky and it's got this jazz band and it's like super moody, but everybody looks like the 80s, like they've got their like Miami Vice gear on or whatever yes. was happening in 87. And it's fantastic. <laughs> and it's extra fantastic because they're in that bar for like five minutes yes five minutes of awesome and there's some really interesting moments in that so if we could just really quickly go i'm sorry did you have something to say dan oh i I was just going to say mention the the song that pamela sue martin puts on when she gets home uh in her apartment all i just have the lyrics written down it's i need her i need her i need her and this guy just keeps (laughs) more or less singing that over and over again so good it's so good (laughs) but what i like about the uh bar scene so much is Jeff Conaway, if you watch him, he's like, he's already telegraphing what's happening in the film. Because, you know, so so Jeff Conway plays Josh, and Susan Rattan plays his wife, Debbie. By the way, I'm obsessed with Susan Rattan's voice. Oh. I love it. I love it. Mm-hmm. Um, I could listen to her talk all day. So um, so they meet them somehow in the bar, and, and Linda and Jerry are there with Slater, and um, they're all just talking, but there's... I don't, I can't think of, I can't cite the specific moment, but I, he's talking, Jeff Conway is like reacting to somebody and the way he reacts to, I think it's Slater, like Slater's like collateral damage already. Like you can already tell that Jeff Conway's like, I don't want anything to do with him. He's not what we need. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the way he responds to him is so subtly nuanced. Mm-hmm. He's saying something, but you can't really, it's like watching Barton Fink is what it's like. You know how like <laughs> when you watch Barton Fink the first time and you have no idea what's happening? Yes. You you know, you don't get all of the stuff that John Goodman's been saying. Mm-hmm. I sell peace of mind. You know what I mean? And, and it's like Jeff Conway before Barton Fink mm. was channeling Barton Interesting. Fink. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, in a bar where they're playing a song that's almost something that could have popped up possibly on Twin Peaks in a slightly different arrangement. Yes, well, if Julie Cruz had done it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just to have a few moments to talk about Jeff Conway, he's kind of a throwaway character here in a lot of ways, but at the same time, he's Jeff Conway. And he's often the highlight for me okay. of a film, and I think he's definitely one of the highlights here. Even though he doesn't do much of anything, I feel like he's doing something with what little he has. Have you guys seen that movie Jawbreaker? No. Yeah. You know, uh, he ha- he has one scene in it, and he's fucking brilliant in it. And I can't remember much about the film, but if anybody's seen Jawbreaker, you know what scene I'm talking about. He just he makes the most of what he's given. Mm-hmm. Always. Always. Um, I think you both know it's about that time for me. Oh! Oh, it just well, give flies us some... by, doesn't it? This it's is a... another one. This is another episode that you're not appearing in. I know, but his, but he got <laughs> he got to hear it live. He did. I do like that. <laughs> yes. All right, Nate. Sorry. Well, give that, us Nate. give us yeah. some thoughts. So, do you have any? So, would you would recommend this movie because you liked it, right? I liked it, so I'd recommend it. But you hate Tim Matheson. If you saw him in the street and he asked for your phone number, would you give it to him? Uh, I I I only dislike his character in this movie. I thought he was really funny in a very Brady sequel. So <laughs> he's great in everything. I really liked Tim Matheson. He was the voice yeah. of Johnny Quest. Oh, I didn't, I didn't know, that. know that. Yeah, as a child actor, just a little piece of trivia. And I think he owned a portion of National Lampoon, didn't he? Possibly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that sounds like that could be right. Yeah. 
Yeah. He's amazing. And he's on Twitter, guys. Yay. Yay. Okay, Nate. Well, we'll talk to you next time. Um, and uh, hang tight. Yeah. Talk to you soon, sir. Talk to you later. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. But uh, I need her. I need her. I need her. Like, Pamela Sue, what song is that you put it on? Really? That's the song you choose? Also, you know what she does? She opens up the shades and then she takes off her top. Yes. Yes. She doesn't do it the opposite. And then she stretches in front of the window so everybody can see her glorious body. Yes. She's uh, quite beautiful. She is. She is. Definitely. Yeah. I, re- I really like her. I, I just want to bring up just a couple of the things that I thought. I'm finding the more I talk about the film, I'm thinking of it's more fun and less inane. But there were a few things that bugged me. Okay, go for it. One of them was, and this happens within like the first six minutes, you see this old guy, very shaky, go into a church and he kneels down and starts praying. Then all of a sudden you see a hand behind him. The hand, in time-honored horror fashion, slaps down on his shoulder. The guy practically leaps into the air, and it's a priest. And he looks at him and says, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to frighten you. Uh, yes, you did. Because he's <laughs> a, clearly an old man. If, if you, you, you should see that he looks like he's in some distress. And you sneak up behind him and slap your hand down on his shoulder? What kind of priestiness is that? That's just that's that's a little odd. But then what happens? Evil priestiness. Evil, evil priestiness. Super evil priestiness. But then, uh, what is it? About five minutes later, uh, Pamela Sue Martin goes up the, up the steps of her apartment. She's standing there, and all of a sudden, facing away from us, and all of a sudden, you hear like the tinkle of ice cubes. She turns around, and Tim Matheson is right behind her, like on a couch or a bed or something. And she says, without, right. She says without much. The look on her face doesn't prove what she says, which is something like, you scared me half to death. But she says it so calmly, I didn't believe her. And then it cuts yeah. to it cuts to Tim Matheson, and he says, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to startle you. Yes, you did. She came in the house. She's been there for like two, three minutes, and you just sat there. She's taking off her top in front of an open window. Yes. It just, it just seems strange to me that a movie would begin – in its first six minutes, have the exact same thing happen <laughs> and have the character respond in the exact same way. It just was an odd moment. And I thought, uh, um, then there is, what is it? Um, uh, um, oh, oh, it's the, um, now, now I don't know that this is a name. This is actually, this is the difference between the structure of this two hour TV movie, which is about 95 minutes and the structure of Crowhaven farm, which is a 90 minute slot and about, 74 minutes is that within four minutes we are in Crowhaven farm uh the way it begins is we don't know who these main characters are we learn about them as we also learn about the farm this movie spends the first 17 minutes with these people in the city talking and talking and letting out all their problems before we get to the farm yeah 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 but we get this I mean, come I, on. I'm not, I'm not going to argue that with you. I just it because it, 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 I watched them in quick succession, and sort of the brevity yeah. of Crowhead Farm made that look like padding. To definitely, me. Ma- definitely made it, made it look like. There's like no the, padding 
in Crowhaven Farm. It's there, got a point to make, and it goes from point A to point B very clearly. Yes, whereas I think Bay Cove Coven uh, meanders. Which is hilarious because we didn't understand the ending, but it's still <laughs> clear. Yes, yeah, and I mean like things like that, that zoning meeting thing, you know, it's it's like it's, let's it's litigate like, the witches. Yeah, it's it's really it was a really weird scene because, like I said, it's Slater dies. They have that strange – she has a strange conversation with her husband, and then he's – well, I want to talk to you about the zoning uh, where this is a big deal for the firm, and we want you to help out. And I'm sitting there thinking, zoning? R- really? Are we Are – we, oh, my gosh. I thought, are we going to watch, like, the town council discuss where to put the new stop sign for the next hour? <laughs> it, it's a really – It's. it was an odd scene. Um, uh, yeah, and then there is that that weird moment with the uh, uh, hey Nick, can Slater borrow your Jeep? What? Where? What? With it's 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 there. Uh, you know what? I've got a lot of weird things here that you know what? I think are less inane now as we've been talking about them. I actually I I'm I'm warming up to them a little bit more. I think the film is maybe better to talk about than to watch. It's one of those movies that, like, there's okay. nothing wrong with that. I think anybody can sit and watch it once, and it's fine. Mm-hmm. But, um, but you know, like, sometimes you talk about a movie, and it's just, it's more entertaining to talk about the movie. Yes. Than, it, yeah. than the process of watching it was. And this is one of those films, and that's what's so frustrating about it, because the cast is amazing. Like, when you watch the opening credits, you recognize every single name. Yes. And they're all attached to something that you love, like Inga Svensson from Benson, James Sicking, who was probably on Doogie Hauser at the time or getting ready to be on Doogie Hauser and was already a famous character actor. Susan Rattan from L.A. Law, Woody Harrelson from Cheers. I think he was doing Cheers at this point. Um, Jeff Conaway from Taxi, Barbara Billingsley from Leave it to Beaver, Pamela Sue Martin from Dynasty or Nancy Drew, and Tim Matheson from Everything Else. Yes. I'm just saying, like, every actor is somebody you love and they've all come in and Barbara Billingsley is is really good in this like there's this hilarious scene when Slater first comes to the island yes. and he asks to speak to Linda and um Beatrice is uh, Barbara Billingsley's character and she's like um she's resting and you can't visit her and he goes into the house because Pamela Sue Martin sticks her head out and she's like hey Slater come on in and he basically slams the door in Beatrice's face yeah and she's got this smile and the smile never leaves her face but it gets sinister yes yeah she's so good but it's not a good film per se you know what I mean and there's uh, that was another one of the, the questions I had was when um, she talks to Slater. They're literally standing in the shot, like four inches away from each other. Like their noses yes. are almost touching. And I thought, why are, they so, why are they so close to each other? Um, can I uh, bring up one more? And then I, I'll, I'll stop. I don't want to denigrate the film too much because it does have its charms. But um, there is the weird moment in in Crowhaven Farm. We had the husband saying, "What's a coven?" In this one, we have the husband saying, yes. what's a coven? And, yes. But the interesting thing here is that we've already had talk of witches and such on the island. And Tim Matheson's character is actually reading a book about witches. And he seems to be quite some way into it. And he reads a couple of sentences. Then Pamela Sue Martin takes the book from him and apparently reads the next couple of sentences. And in those sentences she read, they, they use the word coven twice. And then he says, what's a coven? And I thought, yeah. you, you, one, you didn't know what that means. Two, you didn't encounter the first time the word coven appears <laughs> in that book about a coven of witches is in the two, two sentences right before you stopped reading. Here's the clip. Declines are a little bit odd. Oh, you noticed. How about that old man who sits in the attic? Oh, he's creepy, isn't he? 
He's at least 90. Must be one of their fathers. Josh has been trying to tell me it's only my imagination. But I'm telling you that Kleins aren't the only weird ones around here. Yeah, I know. You know, I heard the strangest thing last night when I was out walking Rufus. It sounded like chanting. Chanting? Yeah. Must have been the wind. Maybe. Well, this is interesting. The site of the last known witch execution. Some guy named Lucas Noble burned at the stake in 1722. Here's a picture of it. Doesn't seem to say where they burned the guy. It's in the name. I wonder what that means. Lucas Noble, last known witch executed, 1722, Bay Coven. The other members of the coven were never identified. That's what it means, see? You take the N off and you have Cove. Bay Cove used to be Bay Coven. What's a coven? <laughs> witches. You know, a coven of witches, like a pack of something. Here's why I like Susan Rattan. She sounds like she's in a Rankin and Bass <laughs> special. Oh, she does. Yeah, <laughs> like she's Mrs. Claus or something like yes, that. Yes, I yeah. love her voice. It's soothing. Yeah. And I could listen to her talk all day. And wow. um, if she wants to start one of those, you know those little where you pay people to call you on your birthday? <laughs> I don't want her to call me on my birthday and read me a story. I could listen to her all day. It's such a gentle, sweet, unique voice. Yeah. Yeah, I like her. Yeah, I, I like yeah. her very much. I was going to say there was something in that clip, and I'm forgetting it now. Um, ah, crap. Uh, there was so, yeah. It's it's just like I said. It's just a strange moment because well, it's funny because he seems to be reading the book, but not actually reading the book because he he says yeah, it sounds like this guy named uh, Noble, which is who he's descended from. That's that's his. That's descent. right because it's that's a, you can see the drawing and it looks just like Tim Matheson if it was sorry if it was drawn by a really shitty like sketch artist for the police. Yes, yes. Like, you know that sketch they do in Cobra? Do you remember that? When they sketched oh, the yeah, killer? Sure. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it looks yeah. just like that. It's like that horrible. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. And also why I like that scene is that the four of them are like kind of laying on top of each other looking at the book. Yes. Yeah, they kind of. It's so great. Like the way it's framed. Yeah, like they're a bunch of like high school kids or something like, yes. like best pals all on top of, you know, one another. And, and uh, Pamela Sue Martin has a cool like jean uh, miniskirt on. Kind yeah, there's a reference to that in the feedback. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. So here's my question. Is Susan yeah. Rattan, because I obviously missed a lot in this film, is Susan Rattan part of the coven? Because she seems so much like an outsider to me, as much as Pamela Sue Martin does in that I, scene. You know, she's referring to, like, thinking things are weird and that her husband's telling her that it's in her head. I think in the end, yes. Just In the because... end. But, but do you think she was like that through the whole way? Oh, I don't know. Because um, they do do that thing in the beginning where they say, there's probably a house available. Uh, here's our realtor's card. And, of course, the realtor oh, is a fake realtor. That's right. So, so, so either maybe they don't know at that point. Maybe they get corrupted as it goes or they've, they've been I, sort of planted there. I think Josh knows. Okay. And yeah. I only think that because um, at the beginning of that scene, she says, Josh keeps telling me it's all in my head. But then again, so is Tim Matheson. But I feel like the men, again, like in the first film, are being sort of driven, like, not driven crazy, but they're being guided by the okay. coven. Do you know what I mean? That's my impression of Josh. Was that his, now, the character's I, name? Uh, Jeff Connolly's uh, character? I think yeah, so. Josh, yeah, Josh. Josh. So, so in, in the... 
there's that that final there's the, the final scene I remember with the the I, I forget her the um the woman you like I suddenly blanked on her name Susan Rattan um Debbie yes Debbie yes isn't I believe the final scene I'm sorry I wrote so many notes down folks but this is one of those weird movies where sometimes it just literally even as much as I paid attention to it even the ends of some scenes have left my mind and there's the scene where they're trying to run away from the townspeople and she gets surrounded and I think her friend is there remember and they Mm -hmm. like drug her remember no Oh, okay. That's, <laughs> someone write in. Someone write in and tell us. Because I think that's the point where it's like, oh, her friend is a part of that. But that was also during that weird part near the end. I, it's one of those movies where there are about ten scenes where she says, oh my gosh, I've seen this, or I think this. She gets her husband, and then she's proved wrong. Right. And then by, yeah, by yeah the, there's that, like, the hair dye. Remember, she steals the hair dye from the bedroom? Yes. Yep, the hair and dye. Then, and the, so they're the, dyeing their hair gray and he's like oh, it's brown honey. yes it's it, you know it's like um, <laughs> I, I replicated that so well didn't i <laughs> <laughs> my, my my wife thinks you're 300 years old and there's that scene and there's the yes. scene with the uh, the the basement room that's locked up which has um where the husband apparently was kept when he repented and he's just written all over the walls like i have sinned i have sinned by the way but then, that's another connection. We forgot to mention that John Carradine carries around that goddamn door in oh, yes. form, like in every because that's the door that she ends up under, right at the end. Yes, and he carries that. He's just walking around with the door, <laughs> and, door. like through the house, and she's like, yeah. "That door looks familiar." Destroy then, that door, <laughs> and then he's got the door again. Yes. So, so we have a yes. door connection here too. Oh yeah, yeah, crazy. Yeah, this. Yeah, I never thought. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because there's a moment, I, I want to say it's near the end of Crowhaven Farm, when she's got her baby, and she looks out the window, and there he is, walking by with that damn door. door. <laughs> <laughs> yes! Wow. Yeah, there, the, in, yeah, I think that, 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 that scene with the room, with the I am sinned, I have sinned, she brings Tim Matheson down, and all of it's gone. All the writing's gone off the walls. And that's the point in the movie where Tim Matheson doesn't even say, honey, what is wrong with you? He just gives her a look and walks away. Well, I would too. And it, I would too. Yeah, yeah, probably after like 10 or 12 of these scenes. It just, <laughs> yeah. Um, let me see. What else? I, I know. I, I took a lot of notes on this one. I wrote down Edward, the kid. He's a little creep. I really like the child actors. I think they're really good. Um, yeah, the uh, the little girl in particular. So like when they when they're having that party, the one that Slater gets killed at, she just shows up in their mm-hmm. kitchen and she just stares. And they love cake, don't they? And she just stares at yeah. them. And she's creepy. And uh, the little boy is creepy, but he's there's something not as uh, creepy to me about him, even though he gives Pamela Sumar a dead bird. Remember that he yes. hands her. I've got a gift for you. And she puts yeah. it in her hand. Oh, I would be freaking out. She just hands it back. She's like, just take it. I don't want it. But yeah. um, but she's a lawyer too, you know. But um, yeah. she's used to having shit handed to her, right? <laughs> that she has to take. <laughs> but um, um, except for that scene where he disappears into the abyss, I think the little girl is a better creepy kid. Yeah, yeah. What do you what do you think? Are little little girls generally creepy or little boys? Or does it depend? I think little girls are creepier. I can't really think of uh, too many movies with creepy little boys. Like, The Boy in the Shining is creepy, but, like, yeah. there's something... Uh, 
what's the words I want to use? I mean, I haven't seen The Shining in forever, but like, yeah, he's kind of sympathetic in a way. I don't know how he pulled that off, but I think it's because he's having those nightmares about the at the beginning when the blood comes in the elevator, yes. and yeah. I feel for him in a way. Um, Maybe the other. I don't remember the other well enough. I love that yeah, movie. Seen it in ages, yeah. But I can't remember how creepy it is. But I would say like the kid in the pit is creepy. Oh, definitely. Yeah, and 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 skeevy. Yeah, creepy he's super. Skeevy. I love I love Sammy Snyder so much. Yes, I we, I know. <laughs> and Brad Ronald is creepy too, but he's a little too old to really be a creepy kid. Mm hmm. Because he's yeah. almost an adult. But um, yeah, I don't know. I think creepy little girls work. Uh, like Kathy's curse. Oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah oh, Kathy's curse is so me. much fun. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. Yeah. I think maybe, maybe because little boys are supposed to be creepy. Because, like, getting, having a kid hand you a boy, hand you a dead bird, doesn't yeah. seem that shocking in a way because mm. they're into, like, kind of gross things and weird things and, like, the macabre. And, but a little girl's not supposed to be into that. And she's yeah. very, like, dead serious. And doesn't she have, like, creepy dolls or something? And she like, has a doll. Yeah, that she names after Pamela Sue Martin's character. That's right. And it's bleeding. But it has a big blood stain on it. Yeah, so she does things that are like the antithesis of how we expect little girls to act. Where to stereotype children is what I'm doing here. But like, <laughs> but like the little boy is almost in line with what a creepy little boy would be like. Yes. You know, he's just a douche is what he is. Yeah, Look, yeah. Mama, mama, I smell death, mama. <laughs> <laughs> this 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 what is it? This towel or rag or whatever smells of death. It smells of death, yeah. Mama. Oh boy, yeah. That's I uh, getting a nice assemblage of strange <laughs> boys together. Yes. The pit burial ground and this this little kid. Yeah, but I don't think. Uh, yeah, I think she's. I think the little girl's the standout of the two. Mm. I you you know what I I think um I think that little kid he's as independent as a hog on ice. Is that a line from the film? That is a line from the film. They're talking about uh, the yeah the two main gals. They're talking about their husbands, oh. and and this. Um, she, she says, "Independent as a hog on ice." That's men. I really like uh, Susan Rattan and Pamela Sue Martin's friendship. I think it's really fun. Yes, yeah. There's there's the the scene where they find the hair dye. Uh, yeah. They have a lovely conversation sort of together, just gossiping about their husbands. and Yeah, and just how weird the town is. And and one of them says, I'm so glad you're here. Yes, yeah. And it's nice, and it's sad because you know something's going to happen. But I think I think the female friendship, even though it's only really underlined in a couple scenes, is mm -hmm. very strong. And um, and that's a nice component to the film. It's got, it's like, it's like the sum, uh, what's that phrase? Oh, my God. I just have one drink. You know, the some of its parts is the some of its parts are better than the whole. Yes, I would say yes. yeah, yeah, because there are yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's got moments, and the moments really stand out. And um, but but together, it mm -hmm. just doesn't work right. Yeah, there's something about it that's a little strange. And you know, I don't mean to rattle your kettle, but um, <laughs> that that's another line from the movie. <laughs> it's a good one. Yeah, I, I think do you think that that what is the kid's name? I want to say Dwayne, but Edward, oh. Dwayne. Where the hell did I get Dwayne from? <laughs> You're thinking uh, of what's Ed happening. <laughs> yes, oh, that's right. Yeah, uh, Dwayne uh, gives her a little bird, dead bird. Now, Ed, uh, when the kid does it, I think what it is because uh, I'm watching that scene now, and I think it's Pamela Sue Martin has that red dress on. Yes, a great and dress. He, he he just gets really flustered, and he's like, I, I want to give her a little gift. 
I'll do a dead bird. He, he was doing a Jennifer. Yeah. He was doing a Jennifer. Yes, exactly. But just can not I get into bed with you, Pamela Sue Martin? And she's like, no. No, uh, definitely not, you little creep. So here's where I tell one of my life stories. Okay. So my sister, I have this sister who's about eight years older than me, and she had a little boy when she was very young. And when he was about 10, um, she was living with this guy and her son, and I used to hang out at their apartment every weekend. And her son made a friend, and I can't remember his name, but he was like he was like a little adult in a, you know, he was an adult in a little kid's body. And he tried to get into bed with me one night. Holy mackerel. I kid you not. And he got caught by my sister. I was sleeping. What? And he snuck into where I was sleeping. And he was like making his way to, I don't know if he's going to get into bed with me, but he was making his way to where I was sleeping. And uh -huh. my sister's like, what are you doing? And he's like, nothing. And then he went back to his bedroom. Wow. Yeah. So like, That's... <laughs> so like, ah. I totally relate to Pamela <laughs> Sue Martin in this movie. I thought, I'm creepy. super empathetic. Did Edward or Dwayne uh, look like that kid? No, he was a cute kid. You know, he was just a 10-year-old kid. Like, he was, he just looked like a cute little kid. But the thing was, he watched Santa Sangre with me. Oh, wow. Good yeah, gravy. and he liked it. Huh. Maybe, maybe he liked you, and he was just doing no, that. No, he liked, like, these weird movies. Like, he would, like, because I always brought weird movies over to my sister's house, and she would watch them with me, and she didn't necessarily care for a lot of them, but she we were really close at that time. We, we don't talk at all now, but we were oh. super, no, don't worry, I don't care but um uh it sounds like i care the way i said that but i don't so <laughs> um she and i used to watch all kinds of weird movies and one day we watched santa sangre i brought it over i'd never seen it and um he watched it with us and my nephew my nephew hated it like he kept trying to like let's go play let's go play <laughs> and he's like no let's watch santa sangre and he was like totally like caught up in the movie it's a cool movie i just don't know what 10 yeah you know, you're picking up on everything. But he was like a really smart little kid, and I liked him. I always liked when he'd come visit my nephew because we would talk. And he was interesting. But yeah. he was—he must have been a little older than 10. They might have been tweens. And um, uh, all I know is that I woke up the next day, and my sister's like, I think he was going to try to get into bed with you. And I was oh, wow. like, what? What? <laughs> what? How old were you? I was like 24. thats I remember when I was 10. I was all about the 24-year-olds. <laughs> I guess so, but um, it was weird. And I don't think I saw him around too much after that. I think he made himself scarce. Oh, wow. So anyway, right. all I'm saying is, all <laughs> I'm saying is, I relate to Pamela Sue Martin now on that level. Uh -huh. You know what? Listening to that story was as much fun as pouring maple syrup from a barrel. No, it was funner than that. <laughs> no, yeah, it was more I know, I remember that. that line. I remember that line. It was more fun than that. I used the line out of context, but that was the only other line I had written down here. So I was just trying <laughs> it's to. It's sort of like whose line is it anyway? Where you pull a line out of your pocket in the middle of yeah. telling, yeah, that's exactly what happened here. So, all right, do you have anything else you want to say about um, Beethoven? Uh, not, not really. I think, um, I, I think, I think maybe if you watch it, it's definitely worth a viewing. It is one of those movies that I think that lose that can be tough to keep your focus on. It does have, I mean, you know, I forgot a moment, moment I really like is the moment there, there's a, there's a church, there's a graveyard and all the graves are, you know, really, really, um, uh, old graves. Yeah. And 
there's a moment where Slater comes back to talk to Pam Sue Martin's character and says something along the lines of it. It didn't even occur to me was, uh, you know, people have been here for hundreds of years and presumably people have died here. Yes. Well, then how come the uh, oldest grave in the graveyard is from like 1780? Yeah, the newest there's, grave. Yeah, the newest grave. I'm sorry. It's from 1780. Where, where, where do they, there's no other graveyard on this island. Where do they bury their dead? Wah, wah, and, I thought, wah, wah, and I thought that was a nice touch. It but, was, uh, yeah. It does have moments. It does have moments. Although yeah. I think, like the scenes you were talking about, like where the the dye bottle changes and mm -hmm. the walls are different. Like I kind of liked it when it was more subdued, like that. Like when you have, well, why is the newest grave there three hundred years old? You yes. know, like that's creepy. You know what I mean? And so I think if maybe they, I don't know about that disappearing and name changes on dye bottles. Like that doesn't work yeah, for yeah. me on like a level of terror. Uh, you yes. know what I mean? Like it doesn't reach anything. It doesn't mean anything to me. That's, yeah, that's like an Abbott and Costello movie where Costello keeps, <laughs> like where meet the, meet the Killer, Boris Karloff, where he keeps finding bodies. But then whenever he gets Abbott there, the bodies are gone. And you know, yeah. that's funny when they do it here it's just after like the sixth time they pull that off i it it becomes a little um eh. and i i think i think the movie is yeah it, it's got great standout scenes but it's one of those that until maybe the last 10 minutes or so which i know you had problems with so i could be wrong saying this i think they don't the the scenes sort of don't accumulate you'll get yeah. a scene that's a good one followed by a scene with like the zoning discussion, which is like, why are we having this scene? Then you'll get another gun. Then you get maybe a boring one and it, it doesn't, it doesn't add up. Right. But it's, it's definitely worth a viewing if you're interested in this sort of movie, as I imagine you are. So. Yeah, definitely. I would say watch it once. I did like it the first time I watched it. I think maybe if you investigate it too much, like multiple watchings kind of brings out the problems. Yes. Yeah. And so I think the first time I watched it, it was more engrossing because I was just sort of like seeing where it was going and I wasn't necessarily thinking about where it was messing up. I was just seeing that it got to the point that it needed to, which it does. Yes. Um, and so, and so I think it works on that level. I think when you start questioning things, then it becomes a big problem. I think it's probably not the sort of movie to do that with. Crowhaven Farm is, this is yeah. just two, a two hour fun uh, witch movie, you know? So yeah. here's here's my question. So what I brought up earlier is that these movies came out in two different eras. One which was embracing the occult and paranormal and one mm -hmm. which was actually sort of uh, rejecting it. And yet these films are very similar. Do you think that, that they represent the times they were made in? Oh. No, because to me, watching them back to back, uh, Bait Coven felt like very much like a shorter version of it could have been made around the same time as Crowhaven Farm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, obviously the fashions would have been different and that sure. would have hurt the movie a little. But um, uh, I, I, I almost I almost feel like at points, like I mentioned earlier, that lengthy opening with them just before they get to the place, I almost wonder if this it, it probably wasn't but if this was maybe an old 90 minute script or something where they said well we don't do 90 minutes anymore it has to be two hours so they went back in and added all this this bits well, and bobs which screw up they, the pace they might have just felt they might have added those while they were writing it because they knew they had to have a a two-hour time slot hmm. and the whoever wrote it well i think i mentioned the screenwriter in the trivia will was like oh shit i've got oh a, yeah you know what i mean so it might have happened just because mm -hmm. But yeah. um, it's interesting because I thought I had a thesis there. Oh, uh, may maybe there's another film we could do. I mean, because I, I, I mean, I 
I would say that they're they're obviously representing their times in in the way they're made, the way they look, oh, their sure, pacing, sure. such. Um, I but, guess I just meant I, like in a cultural context. They, yes. they, but I think you're right. Because the first time I watched, uh, not the first time, but the first time I watched Bay Coven to do this podcast, I thought to myself, this is like Crowhaven Farm, but 15 years later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no, there, it, it, it doesn't really feel like it doesn't incorporate anything that I would call, I mean, apart from effects and fashions and stuff, that I would call sort of super 80s. It could, I think it could have been yeah. made in the first half of the 70s, no problem. It's interesting, though, because it, culturally speaking, um, and I haven't, like, researched this, but, like, off the top of my head, the way I feel about it, culturally speaking, Bay Coven relates more to its time than Crowhaven Farm does because it's got the occult in a negative light. And yes. we were we were doing our satanic panic at that point. Oh, but the best. Cro- we yes, had such a good time. It was so wonderful, wasn't it? Um, <laughs> but Crowhaven Farm is also rejecting it, but at a time when people were embracing it. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, definitely. So so yeah. Bay Coven actually represents the culture in a way better, but maybe mm-hmm. not. I mean, I'm sure we could do some deep thinking about Crohima Farm and figure something out. But yeah. um, but it's kind of interesting. And I was really surprised by how similar they were, so I'm kind of glad I paired them together because, yeah. wow, they're the same film. You know what I mean? Yeah, more, more or less, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So, Is there anything? It, you, oh, go ahead. Oh, I just, there was one more thing I wanted to bring up, and that's there's okay. a really weird scene where, uh, as, as the movie goes along, uh, Tim Matheson's character decides to burn a lot of his things from his childhood, like baseball cards. Mm, that's right, yeah. And it's a really odd scene where he's near the cliff, he's in the middle of a field filled with grass, near trees, and he started a little bonfire, which looks incredibly um, like a bad idea. Yeah. And, but then what uh, Pamela Sue Martin runs out there, says, what are you doing? He says, it's time to get rid of this stuff. And then they have this long conversation. It's a tracking shot where they're walking away from the fire arguing. And the whole time the fire is burning in the background. And I kept thinking either that that just looks like a horrible idea or well, no, I guess I could think of both at the same time. And I also kept thinking that that fire was going to, like, ignite a tree or something like that. Right. Maybe that would be, like, a witch thing that would happen. But it doesn't. It just burns in the background. And it just – it made me nervous because I thought, could someone please put out that fire? That just looks very dangerous. Please. I think I think I was thinking, what just happened? Because I forgot. Because <laughs> you forgot already. Yeah. yeah well, that could have happened. But that, that was – I think that was the last thing I had to say on Bitcoin. Okay. All right, so let me get to the trivia portion before we move on. So this began filming in June of 1987. It was released in October of that year um, in Toronto. But I don't know where they shot it. I was trying to find the island. And there is a place called Bay Island or Devlin Island. You know how it's called Devlin Cove or something in the movie? I think it's uh, uh, Devlin. There's a Devlin Island somewhere in British Columbia. And I don't know if that's where they shot it or not. I couldn't find anything about it. Um, it ran against uh, the Tracy Allman show and duet on Fox because now we we got Fox duet. in the mix here. Wow! Yeah, I love duet. Are you kidding me? Oh, yeah, um, that's great. And then on CBS, it ran against a TV movie called Family Sins with James Ferentino, which is an excellent, excellent drama that's basically like Ordinary People um, about this sort of dysfunctional family with these two brothers and the oldest brother. There's something not right with him, and he has issues and they go out to this camp and uh, not camp but like a cabin and he ends up sort of inadvertently killing his brother and it's an amazing movie it's really hardcore it's very dramatic it, there's no 
comedy in it at all. Um, James Tarantino, it's his best performance that I've seen. Um, it's really fucking good. So I ran against that. And then on ABC, it actually ran against the World Series and Scarface. Oh, wow. Yeah. So Beethoven ended up ranking, um, I don't know where it ranked, but for it's Nielsen was 13.8 uh, slash 22, which means 13.8 million homes with televisions had it tuned in, which represents 22% of the television viewing audience. Family Sins uh, only got a 12.9 slash 20. The World Series had the biggest rating, which was 19.3 slash 30, and I don't have any ratings for Duet or The Tracy Ullman Show, but that might have had to do with the fact that Fox wasn't actually 100%. Um, oh yes, in our country yeah, yet. it was right. only yeah. in parts of the country. I don't, I don't know how they counted it in the Nielsen's. Um, the L.A. Times hated Beethoven. They called it unintentionally hilarious and stupid. Um, they talked a lot about Pamela Sumarin's wardrobe, which they loved. They thought it was basically just a sort of a vehicle to get her in cute clothes and have her be pretty. Um, she did have some cute clothes. Let's admit it. Success. Yeah. Yay. Um, it was promoted for the Halloween season and advertised as the kickoff for a week of scary programming for the network. Um, director Carl Schenkel is Swiss born and he had directed episodes of the hitchhiker, which I mentioned earlier prior to this. And then he went on to direct the mighty Quinn right after he made big coven, um, which is a pretty popular film. Uh, Tim King, who is the screenwriter also wrote teen wolf too, but mostly worked in episodics. And that was basically all the, uh, trivia I could find about it. This was not an easy movie to research in terms of finding really interesting things about it, but that's generally what was going on when it aired. Um, and now we can do feedback because we have some really interesting um, stuff that came in. And I think that these people are going to bring up some interesting points that maybe we didn't discuss. So let's do that now. Feedback time. Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. All right. <laughs> the, the, the first bit we have is from our friend Kristen Hawes, a.k.a. Kiki Wright. Hooray. Hey. Uh, hey, just wanted to drop a few quick lines about Crowhaven Farms since I got a chance to watch it. I feel like the porter should have known something odd was going on a lot sooner than they did. I mean, you should always be on you should always be on guard when Lloyd Bachner is around. That charm can be deceptive. Also, <laughs> when you've been in your house like 20 minutes and the whole town shows up uninvited to have a party, that's a clue. These people have boundary issues. And for the love of Pete, if Virginia Gregg shows up at your house trying to give you a kid, you say no. This movie, at least to me, had a tendency to be a bit over the top. The husband's zero-to-dick mood swings didn't exactly make me feel bad when he got thrown under the bus later. And the wife's increasingly dramatic reactions as the movie progressed version annoying. I could see why the witches were so keen on vengeance. But there were some genuinely unsettling moments. Jennifer apparently having very adult feelings towards the husband was creepy. And the ending with the wife and the chubbiest baby ever in the pram in the park with the police officer tying the bow. The realization that she will never be free of this curse and never be safe was both horrifying and also rather satisfying, at least to me, because she was on my last nerve. <laughs> I know it sounds like I didn't like the movie, but I actually did, just not for any of the right reasons. Looking forward to hearing everyone's take on this film and on Bay Coven, which I unfortunately didn't get a chance to watch. Keep up the great work, Kristen. So, so she she thinks the ending is different than we do, I think. She feels like that there's yes. this curse that follows her and she'll never be safe from it. And she found it horrifying, uh, maybe for the wrong reasons. But anyway, the uh, also I want to note when she said the husband gets thrown under the bus, I was trying to remember when Ben got thrown under a bus. <laughs> and I was like, I don't remember that. Wait, oh, he didn't. That's a metaphor. Yes. I get it. I get it. She gets but, it um, but I like her interpretation of the ending. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's I like better. It. Yeah, I 
I, I, yeah, I, I guess so. Yeah, I mean, it is, it is ambiguous. Just from her face, you can't. And like, yeah, it's. Yeah, I could see, I could see either ending being the one because she did love her husband. Yes. But, but um. Would you go from yeah. Paul Burke to William Smith? Hello. Yeah. Huh. And you can't you can't quite tell on William Smith's face when he's saying he's going to sort of keep an eye on her. He he looks semi sinister yeah. when he says it, but it is also it's William Smith, so it's tough to tell <laughs> a little bit. Um, and then so, they bald and bald and bald until she all killed him. night long. Yeah. Is that the line? Yeah. Touche. Yes, that's Touché. my favorite part of Invasion of the Bee Girls. He yeah. and he wears that turtleneck in every scene. <laughs> I love he him. Has, Oh, I, I was just going to go off on some William Smith stuff, but we probably shouldn't. We've been talking for a while. We can we can do that some other time. We'll do the William Smith episode, the mini-sode. Yeah. Okay. Did, was he in a bunch of TV movies? I have no idea, but I'm going to make oh. it so. Yeah, let's do it. Well, he was in the Laredo premiered as a, a, a episode of The Virginian, and those are all 90 minutes. Then so if we want to, then we can, we can fake that one. But uh, let me go on to the next one, and it's Ronan from Made for TV Mayhem's Facebook page. Here's just a few thoughts. I've been a Crowhaven Farm fan for a long time. I saw it when I was quite young and would count it as one of my favorite TV movies. I love the rural setting and the witchcraft storyline. The bumping off of the relative and the sense of dread as Hope Lang realizes almost immediately that something is not quite right in her new country home sets the tone nicely. The arrival of Jennifer really puts the cat among the pigeons, and her presence leads to some very uneasy scenes, especially the one with Maggie's husband. The flashbacks are unsettling, and I like how the sinister history of the area unfolds. Along with Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, I think it's one of the best examples I've seen of a sympathetic central female character being dismissed as sensitive and imaginative by thick-skulled husbands and friends, while the rational world is generally collapsing around them. While the ending isn't nearly as terrifying and downbeat as Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, I still grow cold every time I recall the fate of poor Kim Darby. The coda in the park and its implications are really chilling. As you know, I've only recently been introduced to Bay Coven, thanks to you. I imagine that's you. Uh, yes. Not me. <laughs> I, 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 I wrote to you about it a while back after watching it. I have to tell you, I watched Bay Coven and it was marvelous, really enjoyable. It gets off to a great start with some eerie satanic chanting, always a welcome sound, and an unexpectedly dramatic confessional incident in contrast to the teen sex comedy opening of This House Possessed. Then we meet Pamela, and so the swooning starts. Linda appears to be a strong, successful, independent woman until we're introduced to her husband, angst-ridden and sulking in the shadows because he's not able to get his hands dirty anymore. He needs a good kick up the butt, but for the sake of the plot and progressing the story to the sinister island, it's good that she goes along with hubby Jerry's dream of becoming a handyman instead of her own preference to stay in the city. To be honest, I'm a get-away-from-it-all person myself, so I can see the attraction. Jerry's not a bad guy, really, though. And they do seem genuinely in love. I admit jealousy. I have to say, the song by the act in the nightclub as the guy from Taxi sells Jerry, if not Linda, the Devil and Island Dream, is far inferior to Parker's performance of pop perfection in This House Possessed. Sensitive you're not, it's not. That's right. <laughs> I, ha- I haven't seen a film from this decade in what seems like ages, but wow, it is so 80s. Especially that silver number Pamela wears at the club. It kind of distracted me from the seriousness of the argument they have on the way home. Lots to love here, from Pamela seeing some old guy shaking his head in the top window to the weird welcoming neighbors dropping in and acting, well, weird. It's got silly eyewear, especially the storekeepers, satanic basements, a dog murder, dead-eyed spooky children, and so much more. And what a spectacular and inventive death for poor 
40. Nice take on the tampered with vehicle method of disposal. Although you think the baddies could conjure up a less expensive way to get rid of an inquisitive outsider. It becomes really tense and exciting as events mount against Linda, and she makes a brave and inquisitive heroine determined to get to the bottom of the mystery in fine Nancy Drew fashion. Somehow I was especially tense as she sneaked into the weird neighbor's bedroom and poked around during the anniversary celebrations. Linda's decreasing isolation from Jerry and the community was very well handled, I thought. It all goes quite wicker, man, when we realize Absolutely everyone has it in for her, including Hubby. Thankfully, I was glad to see Jerry briefly find his true self again and make the supreme sacrifice, igniting the explosive finale. I love this movie. So much fun with some genuinely unsettling moments as we move towards the climax. It all ends very suddenly, though. Credits popping up just as Linda is impossibly thrown clear of an enormous explosion that the Terminator wouldn't survive. (laughs) Then she's in a rowing boat as the credits roll. What? Is that it? I wanted more. Yay! Yay! Thank you so much. Yay. See, there we go. Everyone can have differing opinions about Baycoven, but we all, we're all friends here. We are. I think it's great that he got so much out of it. By the way, he refers to Tim Matheson as a handyman. And John Carradine is the handyman in Crew oh Farm. And, they, and there's doors, and they are involved with the doors. There oh is gosh. so much in these two movies that are alike. Wow. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, because he does want to get his hands dirty, and and that's what that's what um, if I may if I may quote again, uh, I'm uh, Cheever, Nick Cheever. I'm what they call a handyman. <laughs> and and let's do the the last uh, the last feedback is from Jack at Jack DVD seventy eight. I like Jack. He's a nice guy. I'm I love Jack. He's Twitter. hilarious. I love all these people. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Jack DVD 78 here again with my second feedback. I figured I should just use my Twitter handle since I think there's been another Jack who has given feedback, but I'm the one you embarrassed last episode. Haha, <laughs> not really. It's all good fun. Oh, that Jack. He thinks you're dreamy. Oh, Jack. You're, you're a hunky piece of beef. You know, you know, I, you know what? I apologize, Jack. Uh, the last episode, uh, as we mentioned earlier, that one went on for like three hours and a half. <laughs> and our, I think our call was like four hours long. So by the time we got to your stuff, um, I, bo- like I said, both of us were so exhausted. I, I think you, you could hear it in the episode. So my apologies um, uh, if, if I, we sounded sleepy at the end there. All right. So, uh, nevertheless, here goes feedback. Uh, thought I'd give a few thoughts on this double feature. Hopefully Amanda already dropped the F-bomb a few times because I hate to be the reason this episode (laughs) gets an explicit rating. But first I just had to chime in on your recent, uh, first and hopefully not the last Tori spelling episode. Hooray. Yay. Uh, Definitely. Last. I think it's going to be an annual thing. It it? should be. (laughs) Oh my God. We uh, have to watch that one deadly pursuits where she plays the lap dancer and the two guys are like watching her. I think they're police officers. And the one guy's like, Oh, you wish you could get some of that. Oh wow! Okay, yes. yeah, let's that's that that'll be what you you can. I'm sure you'll find the perfect uh, match for that. I will. During, during co-ed call girl, there was a moment when my jaw dropped. It's the moment when Tori's character felt like one of the Johns wanted sex, and her pimp Iran angrily keeps stating she doesn't have to do anything that she doesn't want to do. But he does state, I'm paraphrasing, however, if you don't want to have sex with them, then you shouldn't turn them on. Well, how dare she? Great what the fuck <laughs> moment next to the lip liner and red acquittal dress. Also, when Tori has taken the stand and explains her situation, she says as one example of becoming a call girl that it seemed glamorous being an escort like in the movies. Now, I can't recall too many call girl movies where being an escort was fun. They usually end in drugs, rape, death, and were ultra depressing. <laughs> Pretty Woman does it count because she was a hooker with a heart of gold and never had a pimp. Okay, on to this week's movies. <laughs> 
with Crowhaven Farm and Bay Cove, you get a two actress Hope Lang, you get two actresses Hope Lang and uh, Pamela Sue Martin that both know something is not right with these rural communities, and no one will believe them. Crowhaven Farm. Careful, Hope Lang, but there is a girl out there after your husband. It's for sure a crooked hand that rocks the cradle scenario that even for the time period seems crazy. This TV movie is a brisk 75 minute, and in that time we get sinister town folks who may be reincarnations from a Puritan past or ghosts. To be honest, I'm not sure, but I just went along for the ride. Hey, all, all three of us, all four of us did, I think. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, uh, I like how we usually get a town historian in these types of films. The person that knows all of the town's wicked history. Things always dead badly for this person. Maggie and Ben have been trying to have a baby, but surprise, they soon get a child in the form of an innocent-seeming Jennifer who turns out to be a suicide parting gift from hell. This girl, Jennifer, who is only 10 years old, wants Ben. She is working her charms like it's 1470 and could die before <laughs> she hits 16. <laughs> Uh, Jennifer, with help from her sinister ancestors, is able to steal Ben from Maggie in what I'll call a game of door slash rocks slash crazy bitches. <laughs> On to Bay Cove. I've never heard of this movie, ever. So imagine my surprise when I read the cast list. Woody Harrelson, Tim Matheson, and underused Jeff Conaway. Last but not least, the awesome Nancy Drew herself, Pamela Sue Martin. She was one of my dynasty favorites as Fallon, until the show ruined her character by destroying all the fire she had in those early episodes. Lots of things to love about this movie. You get crazy quilting bitches, Tim <laughs> Matheson looking as though he has been snorting mass quantities of cocaine as the movie progresses, sinister children, one of which shouldn't play with death things. Pamela Sue Martin's fashions including my favorite, a blue jean skirt and a really shitty black top. An opening sequence in which sins are so great for a confession the confessional can't handle it and spontaneously combusts. A housewarming party that occurs just so the selfish asshole neighbors Nicholas and Maddie Klein can announce their anniversary party. And a killer ending that leaves Pamela Sue Martin rowing her ass off to get the fuck out of Coven Bay. Let's face it, by the end of the movie we only cared about Linda and her dog. <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah, that's great oh, feedback, thank, isn't it? Thank you so much, Jack. That was that was fantastic. <laughs> that's what his emails are like. Like he just drops me lines, oh, yeah. and they're they're like that. They're just so fun, and they're fast and furious. <laughs> yeah. And, as a matter of fact, Roan emails too are really great. He sends me mini reviews all the time. Like he'll uh, we'll start talking about a TV movie, and he's like, "Oh, I haven't heard of that," and he'll go watch it, and then I'll get like a full like review from him like two days later. And they're always really fun like that. And they always bring up really good points. You know, I think Jack probably should have hosted the Bake Coven because he got, I forgot about the crazy quilting bitches because they real, they're like Stepford wives. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's where the, uh, I think the maple syrup line comes from. Yeah, they're really into like their domesticity in like a really weird way. Yeah, that was, thank you so much everyone for the feedback. I always love feedback. Yeah, it was really fun. I wasn't expecting to get anything um yeah. because we get so little of it i do know people are listening um because they contact me but very few of them send feedback and um that's fine you don't have to but also remember you don't have to talk about the movies that we're reviewing uh for instance jack's yeah. talked a little bit about co-ed call girl and you're more than welcome if these movies aren't interesting or you didn't get a chance to watch them and you want to talk about a movie we've already covered or something we've not even talked about um we're we're really up for it so just Please, get in touch yeah. with us yeah, and um, you can contact us uh, through uh, on Twitter at TV Movie Podcast. Is that right? 
and or is it TV Mayhem Crap. podcast? I don't know. I don't know. I you it's keep TV talking. Mayhem podcast. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, um, and then also on Facebook, we're at the Made for TV Mayhem show, or you could email us through our Gmail account, which is tvmayhempodcast at gmail.com. So this is the part where we kind of, uh, well, let's start with, uh, we have a promo. A friend of ours made a new promo. It's one of my favorite podcasts. And um, I have a little announcement to make after we listen to this. Want to learn more about horror directors with a lighthearted look at three of their movies? Meet fearless podcaster Gore Blimey. I've been unsettled by bats in the past and startled by parrots, and I've even been known to jump at the odd cockatoo. Discover horror films that are classics, and others too. There's a topless aerobics massacre, an exploding rock singer, cannibals, nude martial arts, a deep fried prostitute. But it's not all silliness. You'll get proper movie breakdowns, opinion, and background information too. Yep, in the 80s and 90s, Jeff Stryker was huge in gay porn. In every sense. So if you're a horror film fan, come and check out the Trilogy of Terror podcast at strangeanddeadly.com or find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or on your podcatcher. One of those people that has a certain charisma and a certain style, and I'm just hoping one day he'll rub off on me. The Trilogy of Terror podcast, where we try three times harder to give you the willies. Okay, so that is our good friend Gore Blimey. Yeah, who, hey, Gore. Who, <laughs> he has a podcast called The Trilogy of Terror Podcast, and that's not TV-related, although it can be, and we'll talk about that in a second. But what he does is he picks a director, and then he picks three films from that director, and he talks about them. But he also does interviews, and um, he's had a couple really good guests on. The most recent one he had was Eric Threefall from The Hysteric Continues. Yes, those were and, fun. Yeah. Yes, they did Friday the 13th, one through four, in two different parts, and they're really great. Um, he's got a new episode coming out soon. Um, he's going to be talking about Pete Walker, um, mm. who's a fantastic director. Uh, but he told me that he is going to have at some point, um, he's going to do something on Walter Grauman, who directed Crowhaven Farm. Oh, wow. Yeah. Cool. And, and, um, and there's no announcement yet on what films there are or when it's coming out, but it's on his list of, um, things he wants to do. And we'll definitely promote that when yeah. it, uh, goes live because it'll be really fun and we'll probably play his promo as often as we want so it's a show that i think everybody should check out i think it's starting to get a little more popular um a friend of mine online just tweeted him about how much he enjoyed the show and i didn't even know he was listening you know what i mean so mm -hmm. he's it's really worthwhile there's only a handful of episodes now they're about half an hour long so um definitely definitely check it out it's really really fun i think you'll enjoy it um, so just what's happening here on my end, it's, uh, crazy again. Um, things are picking up. So, uh, I think this will come out while the Indiegogo campaign is still going, but there's a book called Yuletide Terror, Christmas Horror on Film and Television, which I submitted a chapter for. I wrote about anthology shows that had, uh, scary Christmas stories. Um, that was really fun. Uh, it's got a lot of great writers in it, including Stephen Thrower and Kim Newman, as well as uh, yeah, the wow. two girls who do uh, Faculty of Horror. And I always hate that I don't write down their names because I know it's Alex and Andrea, but it's Andrea Subasati. Yes. And I can never remember. Alex West. Alex West. I think. Okay. Of course, she has the easier name, and I can't remember it. Um, <laughs> and it's got Kayla Janice. Um, our friend Joanna Wilson, who's been on the Christmas episodes with us, is in it. Uh, Lee Gambin, who's doing Cinemaniacs Presents. 
Um, it's got a really great lineup. If you check out their Indiegogo, just look up Yuletide Terror Indiegogo and you'll come to it. Um, they've got a lot of neat perks and you can take a look. Oh, Zach Carlson's in it. You can take a look at the um, uh, chapter list and it's it's going to be really amazing. I'm super proud to be a part of it. Um, and actually, one of the perks is that they made a short film specific to go with the book. So it's never played anywhere. It was made specifically to be part of this book. And, and at a certain level, you can get the film. So um, take a look at that. It's really, really cool. They even have gremlin sweaters. They have all kinds of stuff. I most recently was a guest on uh, Just One More Thing, which is a Columbo podcast where we discussed Mrs. Columbo. That'll probably be airing a little bit after this goes live. Um, so just check out my Twitter. I'm at TV Mayhem. I don't know what my Twitter is. Made for, oh, made for oh, TV I, Mayhem. I, made for TV Mayhem, and I'll post links to it. At TV Mayhem podcast. No, no, no. The, oh well, is the for uh, oh for you? Yeah. You, oh gosh. But I guess I can do both. I'm sorry. I don't. I know. can't keep this straight. I'll figure it out one day. We'll get this right one day. I promise. Um, mm -hmm. And then this weekend I'll be uh, guesting on the Hysteria Continues. We're going to cover Hackle Lantern, which I'm super excited about. I was also recently on um, an uh, erotica podcast called Doctor Snuggles. Uh, we did an Emmanuel. Mm -hmm in space or manual through time episode. Um, you can find that on the Companeros, uh, podcast. It's a, it's like a sister show to that. It's a spinoff. Um, I also did a really interesting new podcast that hasn't come out yet. So I'm not going to say the title because nothing is available on it, but it's a podcast that looks at, uh, movies that have gay characters or gay themes. And we discussed in the glitter palace, which is a movie I'd never heard of before. And, um, Alexander, the other side of Dawn, and I'll we'll post links to that when that goes online. That should be really good. Um, I am going to be back in England in October speaking at Kent University at a conference called At Home with Horror, which everybody should look up. They haven't listed um, what's going to be there yet, but I'm going to be writing about uh, female-centric paranormal telefilms from the 1970s and their reaction to second-wave feminism. Um, nice. Yeah. Whew. Uh, I think <laughs> this will be live by the time I do it but if you're in Austin on September 4th I'm going to be speaking at the Austin Film Society and screening the very rare uh, small screen slasher fantasies which I'm super excited about because it's one of my all-time favorite films and you can actually go back to our first episode and listen to me talk about it if you're curious oh yes about yeah. the film mm -hmm. um, it's really really rare so I'm really really excited that people are going to get to see it and I've got my fingers crossed that they're going to enjoy it I think it's a really fun film um, and then I think I have some more podcasts coming up. Oh yeah. I have two more podcasts that, uh, I've penciled in, but I haven't recorded them yet. And so I won't say too much about them until they go live. So that's happening. Um, and Dan, what are you doing? Yay. Hey, oh, oh, uh, what am I, I got going on? Um, Dan, yay. Yeah. Um, uh, the, uh, yeah, uh, eventually Super Train is up to episode thirty, and we are uh, we are near the end of Voyagers. We're kind of near the end of Manimal, and we're still knee deep in Christopher George and the Immortal. Cool. A uh, uh, um, uh, minute to dismember. I think I'm about twenty eight <sighs> episodes into that, which which covers the first twenty one minutes. It's it, the numbering gets very confusing, but it's night to dismember, so it's supposed to be confusing. <laughs> And I, but what I've been doing with that is every other week I do a week to dismember and I do seven episodes that post one a day across the week. Then I take a week off and I'm getting a lot of people listening to that. Not a lot of people commenting on it really yet, but a lot of people are, are, I see a lot of listens. So that's good. 
Uh, and again, of course, my book, uh, 80s Action Movies on the Cheap, I keep saying the title wrong, but that is the title, is still available. You can go on Amazon and get it or over to McFarland and pick it up. And um, yeah, at the moment, I think that's that's kind of it. I'm slowly working on a new book. Yeah. And um, uh, yeah, you know, just hanging out. I'm, I think I'm going to have dinner in a few minutes. I actually, That's exciting. I actually <laughs> forgot to mention the book that we're both in. Um, Are You in the House Alone, a TV movie compendium? Oh, yes. Uh, 1964 to 1999. That is available through Amazon or through Head Press, and um, that's doing fine as far as I can tell. Um, I'm getting tweets all the time about people reading it. I got a really neat tweet the other day. A guy somewhere in a Spanish-speaking country left like a 30 – you know how you can like leave tweets in the comments so you have like a thread? He he did yeah. like a thing about my book, and then he picked like twenty movies that he loves or something like that. And um, oh, that's yeah, cool. it was really neat. Uh, hard to decipher because even when I translated it, it wasn't like correct. Do you know what I mean? But I got the oh, general yeah. idea yeah. of what he was doing, and I thought that was really cool. Um, mm-hmm. So it, you know, if you're into TV movies, I think that's a good companion. Oh, and of course, if you caught our last episode. Um, the spell is coming out soon on Blu-ray. Yes, and and yeah. I did the commentary track for that. So if uh, you're interested, you should pick it up. You should pick it up anyway because you should support TV movies in a legitimate um, release. And you don't have to listen to the commentary track, but you should pick it up. It's only like twenty bucks, and it's it's uh, they did a nice job with it. And there is an extra interview with Brian Taggart, who is the screenwriter. And according to the last episode we did, which was a mini-sode where we brought on Jeff Nelson from Shout Factory slash Scream Factory, he said that Brian uh, says a lot of things about the character and how different from Carrie it was and where the real inspiration came from, none of which he's revealed to us Mm. because we all need to watch the interview. But um, that's something everybody should pick up. Uh, I'm really excited to be a part of it. But regardless, I'm just happy that it's coming out. Um, and let's support it. And there's a couple other TV movies coming out too. They just announced The Burning Bed through Kino Lorber. And there's another company, and I can never remember the name of it, and I need to write it down, that is releasing Summer of Fear, which did have a release years mm-hmm. ago with Wes Craven doing the commentary, but that's now out of print. So that's a good movie to pick up if you don't have it. Um, so that's what's going on in the TV movie world. I always think I want to do a news segment, but there's never enough TV movie news. It just, for some reason, there's been sort of a resurgence <laughs> of it. And, um, yeah. or surge, I guess is the word. And, um, it's very exciting t- t- right now. Uh, yeah. there's a lot of love yeah. for TV movies, so let's keep it going. Um, n- yes. next month we're doing not TV movies. We're going to be doing sort of a look at specials, um, because we're going back to school. We are going to do two after school specials. Um, the two movies we're going to be reviewing are Two Loves for Jenny and Please Don't Hit Me Mom, both of which star Lance Guest. And if, I play my cards right, we may actually have a companion interview with um, somebody involved in after-school specials that will go on my blog at the same time the podcast goes up. Um, And I'm really excited about it. Um, They're excited to talk about working in television. So I don't want to say too much about it because I I haven't sent the questions yet and I haven't gotten a response to the questions. I do know they're interested. So um, hopefully that'll be a nice companion to help us learn more about after-school specials and about working in television. So look for that. And um, drop us a line anytime. It doesn't have to be about any of this. It could just be, hey, I'm listening to the show. Um, If you have suggestions, we're always open to that. Um, Actually, Jack, uh, who 
who read his feedback gave me a really good suggestion for an upcoming episode that I'm probably going to do. So we're listening. Oh, cool. We're listening to everything. So uh, get in touch with us, and I'm just going to close out with the best song ever, the Beethoven jazz oh. <laughs> jazz bar song. Now listen how it goes, Tinny. Oh, I nothing. I didn't do anything to the sound, but it somehow fucks itself up. That's exactly what this film does. It fucks itself up. So everybody have a good night, and we'll see you sometime in September. Good night, everybody. Talk to you soon. Just think of me, please think.